This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and happy Monday to you. Matt here with Becca and Terry. Becca is back from vacation. I'm back. How was London? Oh, it was beautiful. Do you Great like it? place. I loved it. Isn't I've it never incredible? been. Yeah. Oh. What do you think about fish and chips? All right. I think it's a little overrated, but it is good. It's, it's really good. They, they leave all the skin on the fish. Yeah. Actually, wait, what? No, I didn't have that kind. Maybe oh. I didn't have the authentic kind. I don't oh, yeah. know. You probably didn't go authentic enough. Probably. Very greasy with skin on the fish. Ooh. But if Ooh. you like that, some well, people like that. It, it's I mean, a, it's I would try crispy. it. Uh, so favorite part of London? I mean, it, it probably was the food. That was amazing. Was I love the markets. <laughs> yeah. But usually what you hear I about, like, like, it's bland. It's but not very... You liked... Uh, did you go to Piccadilly Circus? Did yes. you go to... Yeah. Uh, let's see. You went to the Tate Modern. I uh, went to the British Museum. Oh, yeah. So saw some really incredible things. I mean... British Museum was amazing. Lots of old stuff there. Lots of old stuff. Lots of old stuff. <laughs> really old stuff. And uh, what else? Um, did you did you see the Queen? Did she? Did you visit with her? Um, I didn't answer her texts oh, quick that. enough, and so we weren't able to quiet meet up. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's but. yeah. You got to move fast with the Queen. <laughs> That's right. That's right. She's. Did you see the new baby? The new royal baby? Oh no! But I tell you what. There's just. Merchandise everywhere about uh, about Megan and Harry, but I don't think we even got there fast enough to get all the new T-shirts oh, for the new Megan baby. Megan and Harry, that's going to be a great wedding. Oh yeah, people are excited. You gotta love it. Well, that's great. We're glad to have you back. Thanks. It's good to be back. Now, uh, yeah, Jeff was here last week, which made for lots of fun. Wonderful old stories came back out. And What's the movies? Loved his parole officer. Wonderful man. He just sat in the corner. Yeah, very quiet. It's like he wasn't <laughs> even there. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. And that ankle bracelet's not as big as he makes it sound. No. He's, he really cries about it. Yeah. He's always like, look at me, my hardship. I have this ankle bracelet. I can't even shower. Like, you're fine. Yeah. Just stick your head, your foot out of the tub. Yeah. When you just take the shower, you're fine. Sponge you're fine. bath. Not a big deal. So today we'll be talking with Joe Cannon, our Washington insider, see if he can give us any more understanding of what's going on in Washington. Um, a lot of people, in fact, Jake Tapper from CNN, getting all over um, Kellyanne Conway about how much the president lies. Apparently, yep. the Washington Post says he has 3,000 lies that they've attributed to him. He lies on average nine times a day. Sure. Now, if you could look at you, you look at that list and think maybe their definition, what is a lie and what isn't a lie, yeah. maybe is too far, cut it in half. It's still a lot of – still a lot. Let's just say he's had four, four and a half lies a day. <laughs> Crazy. It's a lot of lying. And lies would be things you can disprove with right. fact. Well, and see, some of it, I'm not sure if they're actual lies as much as just he maybe he doesn't know. He over-exaggerates. We, yeah. we talked, I, I brought an article in where someone was talking about kind of the, the, the Queen's sort of, because that's where he's from, right? The Queen's area of Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about how uh, you have sort of an overreaction. Kind of the Queen's... Uh, as a you, you talk loud, you you use words to just kind of everything's tremendous, yeah, everything's bombastic, great, yeah, yeah, and and so that's how he talks. It's like how you sell cars, it's right? Just how you do it. It's how how people. It's that, not lying. It's yeah. Queen's English, <laughs> in, in a sense. Yeah. And so, how do we translate that back to, you know, more right. of a a normal well, sort of speech? I'm not sure. Like Jake Tapper's all, he doesn't like the fact that President Trump says that Barack Obama could have freed these hostages and the reality is apparently 
uh, two of the hostages weren't even Barack Obama. That's right. So Barack could have probably, I they guess, were taking, freed one of them. Since President Trump has yeah. taken office. They're, they're Trump's hostages. Sure. But Barack could have, should have done something about it. Blah! So then they're like, see, you're lying. Yeah. But is that lying or is that just misinformed? Are you, I, you saying I, the president doesn't know when some citizens he's very concerned about were taken hostage? Yes. Okay. That's exactly what All I'm right. saying. All right. Well, if he just doesn't have the info. I, I just think, I honestly think he's he's not very informed because, right. I mean, Fox News doesn't know everything. Well, I mean, they try. Right. So, he, I mean, if you would just listen to his briefings, if you just well, read the book they hand him. They don't hand him a book. Yeah, if 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 it's he would just watch th- the mimes that act out, it's like a three act play or something. Our foreign sure policy, it would all be fine. So that's going on, creates a little chaos, and of course, uh, Hawaii. Let's get to, let's get yeah. to the headlines, Terry. What else is uh, going on? We should be we'll start about? out with a quote from Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting in, yeah, on Saturday. That was a little surprising. He said, "Well, this is this is just a quote." Has, I mean, he he put out a bunch of different things that made news. This yeah. is one that I found interesting. He goes, "This country really, really works." This country has six times per capita GDP growth than it had when I was born. This is a remarkable, remarkable country. I would love to be a baby born in the United States today. Oh, wow. It has a positive outlook. That's great. If you look at stuff going on every day, all, you kind of just hear about negativity because, you know, it's, people well, the are... the news has to say something. Right. And so he gives us a positive spin. That's good. That's good. Love to be born in this country. Now to the news. Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani on Sunday said the president may not comply if he's subpoenaed by the special counsel Robert Mueller as part of the ongoing Russia investigation. We don't have to comply with the subpoena. The president of the United States, uh, he's the president of the United States. We can assert the same privileges other presidents have, Giuliani told ABC News. The former New York City mayor said he preferred for Trump to receive the Hillary Clinton treatment and be given questions in advance. Trump on Friday said he'd love to speak with Mueller, providing he is treated fairly, though his lawyers have repeatedly said they fear the president could be facing a trap if the interview is done in person. A trap being they ask the man questions and he just continues to talk. Well, it, it does seem like the questions were given to him ahead of time. Yeah, they have a whole list of them. Yeah. So, kind of but a lot the word like collusion wasn't included in any of the questions. It's just a huge amount of them had to do with collusion. With collusion. Yeah, but so. yeah, you didn't use the word see, neener, uh, neener. The Washington Post reported that apparently uh, Giuliani and his media blitz this weekend, he feels like he's <laughs> just nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's saying that we're, we're cleaning things up, we're setting the agenda, we're talking about here's what we're going to do on North Korea, Iran, with all these different aspects of what's going on right now, and he is doing a great job. Oh, yeah. Except the president said we uh, that he has to get his new lawyer up to speed. That was after the yeah, Sean I mean, Hannity he doesn't interview. have all of the facts. Right. He has enough. That he, yeah, they're killing enough it. To, enough to get him in more trouble. White House aides reportedly held a dramatic intervention with Gina Haspel on Friday to talk Trump's CIA director nominee out of withdrawing her nomination amid increasing scrutiny over her role in the agency's controversial interrogation program, torture, uh, four senior U.S. officials cited by the Washington Post and the White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Legislative Affairs Head Mark Short were among those to rush to her office in Langley at the CIA oh, wow. after she told the White House that she wanted to step aside. She faces opposition from some lawmakers in her role in overseeing the CIA torture program in the wake of 9-11, had reportedly announced the news after being summoned to the White House to face questions on her involvement in the waterboarding terrorist suspects. Yeah. So they rushed to save it. Sarah Huckabee Sanders came out and said that Democrats who oppose this nomination to the head of the CIA are being hypocrites because why wouldn't you want a woman running one of the most powerful agencies in the government? Yeah, she, they respond with, well, she was part of the torture program. That's torture. 
people at the CIA respond. They say she was just working as directed. Just doing her job. That was the policy at the time. <laughs> and so it's kind of all this oh, back and forth. Within heavens. the CIA, she is very thought of highly. Yeah, they think it would be respected. great to have someone from within to yeah. run them instead of a congressman from Kansas or right. something. And so it's kind of this weird situation. She starts her uh, hearings on Wednesday, which is why she may have had some cold feet over the weekend. But apparently she's I don't know that board. I would rush ever to the side of somebody who is an expert in advanced terroristic, you know. Waterboarding? Yeah. I wouldn't rush there. I'd mosey on you, over. You can see it on TV almost any night of the week now. I know. It's the go-to on all CBS drama. In fact, I think I saw it on Ellen's show. It's Ellen, one of her, yeah. It's one of her... Yeah, she's really good at that. They do the little surprise yeah. thing. It's a, today it's waterboarding. Yeah. No, it's it it is troubling. Yeah. I'm not sure how you judge her since that was what they were doing as the policy. And she's well respected by everyone else and not just for that. Right. That was a portion of her right. career, but does she need to pay some sort of penalty for that? I'm not sure. Well, it seems wrong, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But how do we judge history, right? Right. Residents of a small community on Hawaii's Big Island have been warned that fissures squirting out steam and lava flowing uh, after Thursday's volcanic eruption are also sending toxic gas into the air. With five houses already destroyed after the uh, Kilauea volcano erupted, a new fissure in the Leilani Estates, whatever the neighborhood adjacent to a volcano, why would you do that? Do you think oh, these people are like, hey, I just bought my house. Why is this happening? You move in next to a volcano. <laughs> it's not like you're complaining about the airport and it's noisy. It's yeah. a volcano. It's been my entire life. All I've heard about is you can go there and watch the lava bubbling up out of this volcano. Wouldn't you love like to go to that HOA meeting? <laughs> so what are we going to do about the lava, you guys? <laughs> the lava. Where does that? I think the natural hot tub should have been like a red flag. Yeah, that was a total red flag. So they're saying more than 100, uh, 1,500 people have been evacuated. Lava spewing 230 feet into the air. Officials said the fissures posed triple threat for any residents who choose to stay. With dangerous sulfur dioxide gas in addition to the lava and the steam, those remaining in the neighborhoods uh, need to prepare to leave because if the winds change, you could be gassed, says a Hawaii County Council member, which is always I mean, something positive. I mean, as if lava wasn't bad enough, yeah. but now the gas? Yeah. That's bad. <laughs> and apparently it costs a fortune to get lava insurance. La- they probably don't offer So it. they do, actually. And oh, they do. very few people get it because it's, like, out of this world. <laughs> so anybody whose house burns probably wasn't insured. So those are all just full losses. Man. Amazing. Do you think they knew that there was a volcano in the yeah. backyard? Oh, yeah, apparently, okay. apparently they all knew. But it's also, you know, usually the lava tends to flow similar directions. And okay. So they, they maybe they did just some didn't sort think of... a fissure would come through their neighborhood. Darn it. Did some sort of environmental study. Oh, no, you're fine. This but isn't I, a lava but, flow. But they love Mother Earth. Okay. Just Mother Earth doesn't love them right Mother now. Mother Earth is biting back at the moment. Finally, a 64-year-old Wisconsin man has eaten his 30,000th Big Mac. Oh, and not boy. only has he lived to tell the tale, but, claims, fissures. but he claims low cholesterol and perfect blood pressure. Really? Don Gorski ate his first Big Mac in 1972 at the same McDonald's where he chowed down on his 30,000th. And he only missed about eight days in between. That includes a 1982 day in which the snowstorm shut down the restaurant, as well as the day his mom died in 1998. She requested I not eat a Big Mac on the day she died. Oh, in remembrance of her, he said. Yeah. 
Gorski said he has OCD, which has led him to catalog thousands of receipts, wrappers, and containers over the course of more than four decades. And he doesn't appear to be suffering from the cause. Ellen DeGeneres had his uh, cholesterol checked in 2003 and came up with uh, 140. Hmm. Is that a good uh, cholesterol number? Seems like a good number. Okay. And he has run a marathon. Well, well, for a Big Mac? With uh, Big Mac number 21,387 in hand. Oh, Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Imagine 26 miles of the burger in your hand. It says after consuming number 30,000, uh, he took one for the road. Oh, you know, to each his own, right? I mean, like. I guess. Boy. You realize he ate that thing after running the marathon with it in his hand. That Some was the... people think he looks Ugh. like John Lennon, but. He ate 30,000 Big Macs. Yes. The dude should be dead. I, no matter what, if is you he eat eating 30, anything else? Well, think about it. What else? Oh, yeah, I mean, what else did you eat thirty thousand of? Salads? Yeah, you probably have. Maybe. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Still hasn't still That's hasn't caused too. any ill effects. There's no E. coli. You got to have your cholesterol tested. Oh, true. Let's do that next time. Put that on the show for the next really? for tomorrow. That's our stunt for the day. Yeah, stunt for the day. Test Terry's cholesterol. Oh wow! Well, good luck to him. Yeah. Hey, on to the next thirty thousand. That's so great. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking with Joe Cannon. Find out uh, his take on what's going on in Washington. We'll be discussing Giuliani, North Korea, McCain. A lot of fun stuff straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Time now to head back to Washington, D.C., and uh, our good friend Joe Cannon happens to be back there today. Joe is our Washington insider. He was a past chairman of uh, the Utah Republican Party, editor of the Deseret Morning News, and we like to talk to him just because of his insights. He he can kind of see through some of the smoke and, and hopefully today give us a little bit more insight what's really going on. Joe, how are you, my friend? Good to talk to you. Good, Matt. How are you doing? Excellent. Hey, um, sound good. Yeah, thanks. I feel really good, actually. Um, I was. Uh, I, I'm glad you're back in DC because uh, hopefully that will give us more insight. Maybe you've talked to more people now. Um, but Joe, talk to me about Rudy Giuliani. Is he helping the president or hurting the president? Oh man. So a lot of people thought, I guess, by hiring a former federal prosecutor, uh, that would be helping the president. Yeah. Um, but, of course, Rudy Giuliani is not your typical former prosecutor. And he's also, and I hate to be, especially as an old guy myself, hate to be accused of age discrimination, but I think he's showing his age a little bit here. I mean, he's sort of a, his first out, you know, out of the box, basically, was sort of ready fire oh, aim totally. on the uh, on the cone payments to the, you know, former porn star. But uh, so that even Trump had to call him back on that. <laughs> and they, no, 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 you know, don't worry, he'll get his facts straight. But then on the heels of that, uh, Giuliani says, uh, oh, guess what? We we don't think we have to comply with the subpoena from Robert Mueller. Now, that may be true, by the way, but I don't think it's very helpful to no. sort of tee it up exactly that way. Uh, in the, the the court 
cases are kind of unclear on this. So uh, I think the Supreme Court held that president, in the context of Bill Clinton, that that uh, presidents are not immune from civil suits, but they were silent on, on criminal hmm. investigations. And there is a separation of powers issue. But what I really think is going on there is this is sort of posting up, uh, you know, more uh, it's 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 a big it's a more of an effort to show resistance to the Mueller uh, investigation mm. and and it, and it may be a negotiation tactic you know they they maybe they want to limit the questions who knows but one thing I would say is that uh, we were hearing all this news about uh, Giuliani but we should really be looking at a guy named Emmett Flood who just joined the um, the Trump yeah. legal team. Flood is a very well-known, very respected, very sharp uh, lawyer who's defended, actually worked on the Clinton impeachment uh, uh, as part of that team, although he is, he's a Republican and more of a conservative. But but all sides give him huge credit for being kind of sort of a go-to guy that you'd want on your team if you're in this kind of a fix. And we haven't heard hardly anything about him or about him other than the fact that he joined the team. And my guess is, is that he's trying to figure out how to dial back the whole Giuliani PR show. <laughs> so is Giuliani then more, he's just kind of, he's the guy out on the street with the press and Emmett is behind the scenes that will really fight that's the case. A, I mean, that's how I would guess that it's, it's running. I mean, I don't honestly know anybody who would go to Rudy Giuliani as their primary legal defense team mm. in this kind of a situation. I mean, he's, uh, he's a showman. Yeah. And, uh, what, what, what's needed here is uh, a lot more, a lot more tactics and a lot more dealing with the reality of, of a, uh, of a perfectly lawful investigation. And then the president though is, is cleaning up after, Giuliani and even saying, yeah, he doesn't, you know, he's new. He doesn't know the facts yet. We'll get him caught up on all the facts. But right. I mean, it's, is, it, is it getting him in deeper legal trouble? Is he, it just seems like if he's not careful, Giuliani himself could put him into more jeopardy. Well, that is exactly the case. I mean, when you start talking about the president, when you make statements, when your lawyer makes statements that thing A is true, when it absolutely contradicts statements about your from your client on thing a uh-huh. you got a problem you know you have a problem i mean that's just uh on the other hand uh president trump seems to relish in this kind of uh uh tactical um you know these techniques i mean yeah. it's like there's a lot of publicity what giuliani said helped him a lot if it's true it just turns out it might, might not be true and then you got the president, the client himself, saying, oh, yeah, maybe these facts aren't exactly the way Mr. Giuliani laid them out. I mean, that's just sort of an awkward, embarrassing kind of a thing. Oh, it's um, – yeah, it's, it, it is – and it seems like maybe – you point out, it may be more than, more than just awkward. But. Yeah, it might be legal jeopardy. Um, one of the things that uh, that is – that made the news yesterday was Jake Tapper – you know, pushing really hard on on others about how much the president is lying. Apparently, the Washington Post set, has caught him in like three thousand lies or whatever. 
Um, whether they're lies or just confusion or misstatements, they say he's averaging nine lies a day. Um, to, should we? I mean, we want we want honesty, we want trustworthiness, but I mean, is that is it lying? Is that the problem here? Is he just misinformed? Is this just part of the way how President Trump negotiates and and moderates the media? What's what's going on? And and is the whole lie approach going to to go anywhere? Well, as you said many, many times, Matt, on this program, <laughs> who knows what's going on sometimes in the mind of the president because he's, he's uh, uh, he, he makes a, a, a big part of his shtick is, quote, you know, saying what he thinks, saying yeah. what's on his mind. And that, that lends him a degree of what a lot of people say is authenticity. Uh, and, and it's seems to work. It, it definitely works uh, in his base of support. But he's still, you know, around 40 to 45 percent, depending on what poll you look at, uh, approval rating and over 50 percent disapproval rating. So it's not moving him much beyond his base, whether it's a tactic or whether it's just how he is. I, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be changing the political um, calculus very much right now. That's a, Does it matter uh, if he gets results? I mean, it well, seems like one of the benefits, yeah. he's getting well, results. Yeah. yeah, I mean, whatever he is or his personality is, if you just sort of close your eyes to that aspect of it and you just look at what he's done, it's actually quite a bit. I mean, I know his opponents say he's done nothing, but Gosh, he's, he's uh, clearly changed the conversation on immigration. I know we'll probably talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But uh, when you look at his court appointments, he's just came out. He came out with his third or fourth round of judicial appointments. You know, by conservative Republican lights, they're all you know exceptional. Um, you know, he hasn't been as successful on the legislative front, but that's because he doesn't. You know, people say, well, the Republicans control the House and the Senate, but really, given the, the mechanics of how you do things in the Senate, the Republicans don't really control the Senate. So that's been that's hampered him a little But He did get the tax bill out. And, you know, that for his base, that that was absolutely huge. What, and then so, what's going on? Yeah. What's going on with his foreign policy with Korea? I mean, that's it's a big deal. And I think I think you're going to see. I don't know this, you know, honestly, I have specific inside information, but I think, you know, next week, uh, you know, the, there's the uh, 70th celebration anniversary of the creation of the state of Israel. Mm. Uh, lots and lots of people are going to be in Israel for that. That's the that's when it's going to be official that the embassy moves uh, to Jerusalem. And I think you're going to see some kind of an announcement on the Mideast peace process, which is going to take people by surprise and, and show some of the fruits of his recent uh, warming with Saudi Arabia and cooling toward Iran. I think that's that's going to pay off in this uh, in that peace process. So who knows? You, you see some fairly objective reality of, of things happening that at least by, you know, by a lot of his supporters are moving the ball forward. And yet you have some feeling sometimes that there's chaos on you know on the on the public public persona. Yeah. Wow. 
Can you imagine? I mean, I don't mean the public persona, but I mean it's the the turnover in the White House, yeah. and statements and tweeting, all of that. You know, maybe that's just a big distraction. Right, right, and and maybe that's his technique. That that's what we were talking about. Meant you know, right when he began, is that he just tends to create a little chaos and then work behind the smoke. Um, one of the things that uh, was a comment that he made going back to immigration is that the president suggested that he may just shut down – the government may shut down the border until they figure out this immigration thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, wow. What a can of worms that is. The, the, <laughs> the government runs out of money in September. Oh, just a few weeks before the uh, – midterm elections. I just don't believe in a million years that that, uh, any president, Democrat or Republican, would shut down the government on the eve of an election. That would just, that would, uh, whether that issue has long-term legs, there's a lot of debate about that, that, you know, like even uh, weeks and months after the uh, government shutdowns, does it have any political uh, juice? You know, it seems to not, but in the immediate aftermath, it's a big deal right. to shut the government out. It would it's just blow every other issue out of the water. A, B, he has um, threatened that before, by the way. Last August, threatened the same exact thing uh, about shutting the government down. I just don't think that, I mean, this this has all, to me, all the markings of, of, uh, of a negotiation, a negotiating tactic. Looking into the wall is very interesting. I just I thought, well, I wonder what where public opinion is on the wall, and it turns out uh, more even to most of these kind of polling questions, it depends on how you ask the ask the question. So you know, there's a you know big um, Washington Post, Quinnipiac, ABC, a whole bunch of polls you take it together show that 60 percent of Americans oppose building a wall. Hmm. I think, wow, that's pretty definitive. Yeah. And then you have a Harvard a Harvard NPR study which says that, well, if you ask the question, well, would you, what about supporting the building of some combination of a physical and electronic barrier along the border? Then it's more like 60% support that. Oh, wow, really? So, yeah, it just, it's a very interesting. It's, it just depends on how you ask it. Yeah, it's clear that a lot of Americans, maybe a majority of Americans, are concerned about immigration, but on how the strength with which they're concerned about it. You know, like I said, if you say a fence as opposed to a wall, that makes a difference. Yeah, in in the polling. Um, so it's you know it's pretty interesting. There, there's no question, by the way, that Americans support a DACA approach. Yeah. So you know they can. Every every poll shows it's in the high 80s uh, support uh, letting letting people stay here if they arrived as a child. Uh, See, and that's are, that seems like such low hanging fruit that they could have already had a decision on. Um, but I guess people keep throwing the wall into that as well. Right. I mean, I think I think everybody agrees, even even President Trump agrees that, yeah, there's, there's got to be a solution to the DACA. But then when you tie it to the wall and funding of the wall, that's where you run into the problems of the Senate. Right. Um, boy, speaking of the Senate, uh, John McCain apparently um, not doing well, uh, needing to work on his funeral arrangements. So but he's coming out uh, 
shooting very straight, being very honest about his feelings about President Trump, also talking about uh, that he regrets not picking someone else in 2008 instead of picking um, uh, Sarah Palin. Yeah, it's really hard for me to talk about John McCain. I mean, he's erratic, he's eccentric, but he's also dying. He's a hero. Uh, You know, he's a very complex figure. But I will just say on the point of... uh, Making a uh, when he says I made a wrong decision in picking Sarah Palin, what he was really saying is I made a wrong decision in not picking Joe Lieberman. Yeah, uh, and apparently that was under serious consideration. He was thinking, well, Lieberman is the guy. Uh, Lieberman is the guy compatible with my views on foreign policy. But uh, honestly, that would have. This is going to sound, you know, maybe crazy, counterintuitive, but. He would have gotten destroyed by a much greater uh, percentage if he had Lieberman on the ticket. And I'm a huge Lieberman fan. Yeah. By the way. Is it just because so, he would have you know, lost the conservatives? Well, yeah. You, you, what Palin did for him, in fact, there's a, a lot of uh, political analysts thinking on, on the Palin choice, whereas not very many people would have said, gee, that's the intuitive choice. He probably, he probably won. He probably got a lot closer to victory, and he did get fairly close to victory, by choosing Palin because the one thing that was clear about McCain is he did not energize the Republican conservative base. Mm. And uh, I remember that convention when when uh, he chose her. It was like people went crazy. They 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 loved it, and, they, they, and it, it kind of said to the conservatives, okay, we can sign on with a guy who isn't necessarily our – our first choice. So uh, in an odd way, the Palin decision was a stroke of political genius at the time, at least it it got the base energized and he came a lot closer than he would have Mm. because the Lieberman pick would have had the exact opposite effect, the exact opposite. So that's so interesting. um, Yeah. And boy, that would have been a really cool combination, by the way. No, Uh, I, yeah, I, but it wouldn't have gone as far apparently. No, 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 no. It, it couldn't have. Not not because he's a Democrat, but because uh, although that would be a, obviously a problem in, in Republicans. Every it, Republicans have often flirted. I don't know if Democrats have ever flirted with it, but uh, uh, Eisenhower flirted with having a Democrat uh, vice presidential candidate. Uh, it just. You know, it has a certain kind of appeal to it, but it ignores a huge political fact, and that is there is a Republican conservative base, and you cannot win without that base. Right. Period at the end. Wow. Joe, that's why we need you. We need your insights, uh, and we appreciate your time. Joe Cannon is his name. He's our Washington insider um, and just a good friend of the show. We so appreciate him. You can also find out more about what Joe is doing um, with his organization, Fuel Freedom Foundation, where he's trying to lower fuel costs for everybody in the United States. All you need to do is go to fuelfreedom.org. Joe Cannon is his name, and uh, we love him. We love having him here. We'll continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. We'll do a little Coach's Corner up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. 
Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, folks. You know, we all have little things in, in our lives that we want to change, we want to improve upon. So how do you actually go about focusing on, um, on change? And one of the things that I have found as I work with clients and we talk about their change is it's easier really to talk about what you don't want to do anymore, right, than what you actually do want to become, if that makes sense. It's, it's easier for us to pick and nitpick on the negative, what we don't like, than it is to actually identify what we do like. And so one of the things I have found in trying to create change is to take more of what's called an appreciative approach to uh, the change. They call it appreciative inquiry. It's a form of consulting that many um, uh, organizational consultants might do as they go in and look at your organizational ills, the things that need to be fixed. And the big key here is to focus on what works. So when you have talked or thought about something, in fact, right now, pick something in your life you'd like to do better. Pick something you'd want to change whether it's healthier eating habits, you know, being more patient with your children. What, um, what, what we do is we all want some movement, some change in our lives. And so one of the first keys to making that change take place is to identify what works. In the past, what has made it so you could be more patient with your children? In the past, what have you noticed has worked? to help you be a more patient parent if that's what you're trying to change. Or if you're trying to change your eating healthy, uh, healthier habits, um, what in the past has made it easier for you to eat healthier? So notice what I'm asking you to do is go back to the past to where it has worked. I'm not asking you to go back to the past where it didn't work. Go back where it was good, where you were getting progress. What has worked in the past when you were successfully living that principle? What have people close to you or who? Uh, what have they done to live this principle? So part of the key is we're going to go backwards and up in the past to where it worked. And the benefit of going there is that you already have a vast array of information, of data from yourself and others about what works. You don't need to go put together a bunch of new stuff to do yet. Let's first go shore up everything that used to work. Then what, another thing is you're starting to work on being more patient with your kids. You can start to notice today what worked today. What made it easier for you today to get to be more patient with your, with your child? So if in the past we start identifying a list of things that used to work, and in the present, what's working today? Again, you don't want to aggregate a huge list of, well, that didn't work, that didn't work. Instead, what did work today? Well, when, I'm, when I come home and I sit in my garage and spend a few minutes before I will run into the house and just find out what my goals are, calm myself down, that helps me go in the house and be a better dad. That worked today. Um, getting some help and support from your spouse, that worked today. Uh, noticing when I was starting to get a little less impatient and putting myself in timeout for a few minutes, that totally worked today. And then the goal would then be to identify what what would you be doing in your life. So if you had a, if I had a magic wand and we could make it, you're perfectly healthy, you're, you're a perfectly patient parent, everything is going great, what would your day look like next week? 
How would your goal, if you were already living it, of being a perfectly patient parent, what would that look like in the future? And so now we can go up to the future and start to say, if it were working, what would I be doing differently? When my kid's pouring his milk all over the floor, how would I handle that differently? Ah, well, I would breathe through it. Uh, we'd calmly, if he had done it disobediently, we'd put him in timeout. We'd have a process for how to handle that. We would have read four other books on how to manage um, some of these behavioral issues that our child might be going through, but really starting to work through what it looks like when, it, when people do it. You might ask other parents what they do and figure out what works for others. So by focusing on what works, it's different than focusing on and knowing everything that you've tried to work on your kid. Um, And I know it seems like it's easier to find the things that aren't working, but the reality is there's a lot of days you're very patient with your child. It really is. And there's certain days that you're more patient than other days. So there's answers inside of each of those days. In the past, what has worked? In the present, what worked today? And in the future, if it was all working for you, what would it look like? Basic, simple tools to help all of us uh, be a little healthier and, and create better results in our own lives. That's what we're trying to do to just be a little bit better today by focusing on the appreciative side, the stuff that's actually working, instead of just uh, beating up what doesn't work in our lives. little Coach's Corner for you. Ways to, uh, to find the answers by looking for what is already working in your life. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. There are plenty of self-help books on the market for how to improve your marriage. There are hundreds of pins and Pinterest boards dedicated to the subject. Wouldn't it be nice, though, if there were three simple pieces of advice that would help? Three, uh, you know, easy to remember, you know, principles. Well, not long ago, Dr. Lee Johnson, associate professor in the Department of Family Life at Brigham Young University, gave us his three keys to improving your marriage. I began the interview by asking, what does better sleep and diet do to help our marriage? If we think of our fight or flight, there's a threshold where we're going to hit our fight or flight and survival and protection because reactions are going to kick in. If we can manage our life so that we have more space before that kicks in. And I know it's not really space, but that's kind of the but it's metaphor. Kind of, yeah, it, it really is. It's yeah. kind of, yeah. Stephen Covey always called it that, space between stimulus and response. Right. The ability to widen that we gap want that a little bit. wider. And so yeah. some of the things you can do, I, I think managing your stress is get a hobby, get something you enjoy doing with other people outside of your relationship. I, yeah. You want to spend as much time with your spouse as possible, but I think time away from your family Doing something you enjoy for you is good. It seems like there's an unrealistic expectation sometimes that your spouse is supposed to do everything for you. They're supposed to be there for everything you need. Yeah. But is that realistic? For some people, it probably is. I I haven't met many. Yeah. Um, But I think having a break sometimes, having your own ideas, your own hobbies that you can then talk to your spouse about is a good thing. And you don't have to share every hobby with you. Like It might be great that... If your husband likes to golf, let him go golf. Yeah. Let him get rid of right. some of that energy. I like fly fishing. My, my yeah. wife one day said, hey, can I come? I said, you can come. But she said, well, maybe I'll take it up. I said, I'd rather you not. Yeah. Don't take it personally, but this I is... like to go do that with other friends or by myself. Right. And she's like, yeah, that's fine. But she has, she likes to sing. So, you know, she does her hobbies. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. But the hobby then, I guess, is an outlet really, right? Yeah, Emotionally. it's an outlet. 
but it, it allows you to kind of decompress. It allows you to relax. I think the other the other big one for stress is how we set our goals. A lot of them we we do what's what people call smart goals, and it comes from the world of business, which it really right. works when you can control everything. But in our lives, we can't control everything, and we can't control our emotional responses. And so, setting these goals that are hard and fast actually cause more stress than they're worth. Right. And and you really you know you set yourself up for failure. Stress is the anti achievement emotion. If you're really <laughs> yeah. stressed, you won't achieve your goals. And that's true. So setting these goals that are overly rigid and overly you well, know, like think of that. Like uh, I've got to get this done tonight. Yeah. But your kids have a report. They want your time and your attention. Right. So, and you want to be a good dad, so you're trying to give your kids time, but, and you're, so, yeah, you got to be flexible, don't right. you? Right. And it's, it's kind of interesting that a lot of the goals we set are things like, I'm never going to get angry at my spouse again or yell, you know. Yeah. Well, you can't control if you get angry or not because that's the pre-conscious part. You can control your reaction afterwards. So setting that goal of, I'm never going to do that again is setting yourself up for failure because yeah. your body will do it again at some well, point. Well, and too, like I, you see a lot of people that are trying to break a habit or are right. trying to stop looking at pornography and they'll say, I'll never, I'll never have that desire again. Right. But the desire you're saying is the pre-conscious. pre-conscious. That's, that desire is going to be there. Uh, it's just right. what you do with the desire that's the important Well, you thing. talked about fight, flight, or mating. That's, yeah. that's an innate right. physiology. So you're going to have those thoughts again. Yeah. Pre-conscious, post-conscious, you have decisions that you can make, and it's interesting because consciously, you, so you may not, you're not thinking it, but so th- that's what I always talk about is ninety percent of your brain is biochemical anyway. I mean, how you're going to think, right? right? So a pre-conscious thought would be your biochemistry kicking up, yeah, stuff, conjuring up stuff. Then it becomes a thought, but then then it almost has to be conscious. Then then you have to like, oh, oh, what. Right. I'm thinking this though. Right. Then you can do something. Then you can do something. But it's still very quick. So yeah. you can go from pre conscious to conscious to reaction uh-huh. and yelling or being very upset in, in within a second. Right. Or you could go right to the script that says you're a loser because right. you keep thinking that right. thought. Yeah. And, and then, then that get even depressive. It feeds back right. in and you get depressed, yeah. Which then drives the the right. chemistry need and it's it's a cycle, isn't it's it? It's one big pattern, yeah. That's why I guess working on it in whatever level, right. uh like having a hobby you, what you're, I guess, going to do is burn off the pre-conscious energy or what is it? Some of it. It's not really or burning off. It. It's, it's strengthening your kind of baseline of where you're calm and relaxed. You're in that connection. So the mm. talk about fight or flight a lot, yeah. but our other physiology side is connection. Right. And so we want that side to be active more, that rest, digest, connection side. We want that to be active more and things like a good night's rest, a good diet, reducing your stress, physical exercise – Physical exercise actually does more for your brain than your body. I mean, yeah, that's what we were just the, talking about earlier. Is... The neurotoxins and not neurotoxins, but neurotransmitters that are positive. It gets you endorphins. It pumps you up. Pumps you up. It relaxes you. It helps you sleep better. So really, the the exercise is it's just improving your chemistry. Yeah. So you don't have to react. So on you don't it. react as quickly for inappropriate times. What what do people do that are that are just more highly reactive? I mean, there's some people that are the minute you say something. Um that that I mean like we talked about earlier, there could be a genetic component to that yeah, too, right? That could right. be their temperament. Right. Some kids and some adults, some people just are more quick to go, to go there, they're more stressed. It could also be something has happened in their past so they feel that worthless, that unworthy, that not good yeah. enough kind of Worldview, so that anytime anyone gives them any feedback or any, you know, they they don't get cut off in traffic because someone makes a mistake. The guy cut them off in traffic because they're not 
good enough or they're not right. yeah, valuable. Kind of, and they personalize yeah. it. They personalize or it. Or awfulize it like this is the right. biggest so thing So if you're ever. personalizing a lot of things, you can react quicker sure. a lot of times. You see that a lot with parents in parenting. Yeah. Their kids having problems and they make it about it's, themselves. It's, yeah. They're a bad I'm parent. a bad parent. Not interesting. Yeah. You have to deal with this every day, Lee. It's hard. <laughs> Poor Lee some Johnson. days it's hard. Some days it's fun. Sometimes, some days it's probably it's super like any fulfilling, job, right? right? Yeah. So you're you're saying some other tips um, would be physical exercise, but then yeah. sleep. Sleep is a good one. I, I think it's. I one love. Day, sleep. I love sleep too. If sleep could be an official hobby, I think it would. Oh, I'd my, be on the Olympic team. My wife told me I could win the Olympics gold medal in <laughs> sleep one time when we were first married. <laughs> but it's sad. but it, it's kind of like I, we wouldn't skip a meal very often. Mm-mm. But the first thing we get rid of, it seems like, when we get stressed or busy is sleep. Yeah. And you need it. It's it's a basic, like breathing or eating. That is Dr. Lee Johnson, associate professor in the Department of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, giving us some of his keys to how uh, for how we can improve our marriages. Well, we will continue the journey, folks. That is the goal of the program, to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Becca and Terry. The gang is gathered. We've been working all night to get you the latest and greatest information so that you can live a healthier, happier life. Today, no exception, we'll be talking about what makes us overconfident. A lot of us just are way too confident for the little information that we have. And uh, we'll be talking with a researcher who has found some pretty, I think, interesting insights into uh, that, what might lead us into this overconfident mode. Also, uh, we'll be doing a little Coach's Corner. We'll be talking more about how to improve your marriage by getting better sleep and eating. And for heaven's sakes, get a hobby. Get a hobby will help your marriage as well. All of that straight ahead. Plus, of course, some of the headlines um, that are that are the latest and and uh, most recently breaking headlines. Also, um, Trump and his 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 uh, is he ever going to pay a price? CNN is asking for the words he uses. Mm-hmm. Apparently, a lot of a lot of what he says isn't necessarily accurate. Whether it's a lie or just misinformation, not as accurate as it needs to be. Alternative facts. Yes. Kellyanne Conway calls it alternative facts. And so she's been out on the stump, you know, trying to, you know, push the fact that it's just the press. The press just keeps, you know, looking for the bad things that he keeps doing. Um, But then the press are saying, including the Washington Post says, you know, well, there's been about 3000 lies so far, which I think averages out to about, they say, nine lies a day. Oh, wow. But I mean, who doesn't lie nine times a day? I mean, I was thinking. Now I'm not defending this at all. Yeah. But uh, but I was thinking like uh, there's like all those statistics about how many times the average person lies in a day. Yeah. yeah I mean, like when we're lying for good reasons, he's lying for good reasons. Well. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh. Yeah. It's all good. It, I mean, it definitely carries more weight, you know, when you're communicating that much with. Yeah. The nation, I, you're. Well, and some of the stuff, he, some of the stuff he may not actually know the exact number of things, so he might drop a line that says everybody. He uses a lot of, you know, big word like bombastic 
language, billions. everybody with a brain, billions, um, billions upon billions of people. So right. that's a problem. But uh, one thing that's happening is John McCain, um, uh, as he's recovering from ba- brain surgery or, or trying to recover from brain surgery and other things, he's 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 going to start taking Trump on, I think, a little bit more. Hmm. I think he feels like he's got nothing to lose. So let's just shoot straight. And uh, he's going to he's going to say it like it is. What do you think about him announcing that he doesn't want the president at his funeral? Well, I mean, it's... he goes, "I'll have the vice president. I do not want the president." He's yeah. a sitting senator, and you say that it just seems not productive. Yeah, yeah. Except you know, you don't want him to come and make a spectacle, right? Of your of your. Uh, you know your death. You don't want him to receive any advantage politically from your passing. So, and they did. And then the the article I had did point out it says Trump has belittled McCain's history as a prisoner of war, saying he prefers people who weren't captured. Yeah. And McCain has said that Trump lacks principles and beliefs. So there's honest there's issues, but we in the past we've been able to just kind of set those aside. Yeah, and be civil. And now we're to the point where you can't come to my funeral. But that also may be somebody that when you know you're dying and you know you're dying and you could die within six months before, you know, maybe even before um, the big midterms. Right. You might you might want to say what need like you might want it your way. I don't want anyone to come in here and after beating me up, after beating Jeff Flake up, I don't want somebody to come in and, you know, Hmm. start messing with our election here in Arizona. I don't know. I I I already I'm planning my funeral and I I don't have a brain tumor. But I know that there's about 50 songs I want played at my funeral. So pretty much my funeral is going to be a concert. Really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I thought it'd be and we're going to give away free food. Of course. But there will be a guy in a kilt. Or are you going to do the thing where you, a bagpipe. you invite the food trucks and then, well, everyone's got to pay for the food truck. You oh, that's pay. a great idea, though. Have you done that? Actually, I'd like to know that, too. Do we have to pay for our own food? Yeah. Or... Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. But but you there, it, it's also, you, there's a plus one. You can bring someone else. Oh, okay. And maybe they'll so pay for it. It's going to be swag. You. Yeah. No swag. Actually, yeah. I think I do have a lot of Matt Townsend show uh, <laughs> cell phone, cell phone caddies yeah. that, yeah. So there will be tons of those. Hand those out of the door. Ones. Balloon drop? I'm it's not a... planning on dying anytime soon, but I I am planning it. Thoughtful. It's thoughtful to prepare it to be like a nice yeah. celebration for us. Well, yeah. And but I want and you you know, there will be a collection for the family. So bring cash. That's what I'm saying. Lots of cash. Lots of cash. Let's get to the rest of the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? We'll start with another quote that I read in the last uh week or so. Mitt Romney sat down with the Washington Examiner and the question came up of uh, what is your favorite meat? Mm. And he said uh, his favorite meat is hot dog. Really? He goes, that is my favorite meat. My second favorite meat is hamburger. Is hot dog a meat? And he goes, and everyone says, oh, don't you prefer steak? It's like, I know steaks are great, but I like hot dogs best and I like hamburgers next best. That's from the article. (laughs) 
Someone's running for office. I like hot dogs. I'm the common man. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if hot dog is more of a collection of meat product yeah, or actual meat. Well, not it's, sure. it's, it's pink meat. I think we've determined that on the show before. <laughs> To the news. And the first sign of tension since North Korean leader Kim Jong-un vowed to end his country's uh, nuclear program last month, uh, North Korea on Sunday accused the U.S. of misleading public opinion by claiming U.S. pressure prompted the denuclearization pledge. A foreign ministry spokesman cited the official uh, North Korean news agency said the North Korea's decision to close its testing site had nothing to do with U.S. sanctions. The spokesman went on to warn Washington to not deliberately provoke North Korea by moving to deploy strategic assets in the South. This act cannot be construed otherwise than a dangerous attempt to ruin the hardly won atmosphere of dialogue and bring the situation back to square one. Uh, the spokesperson said President Trump, who is expected to meet with Kim for a historic sit-down in the next few weeks, has promised to maintain sanctions on North Korea for the time being and repeatedly suggested his hardline stance is to thank for the thaw in relations. Mm. North Korea says, not so fast. So, I mean, that's that's kind of strange because I thought they were doing it because their nuclear uh, ex- mountain imploded on itself. Just because they-, they tested underneath the mountain that collapsed on the testing site doesn't mean now it's convenient to just kind of... Okay. But whatever it is, the West, the, we, the U.S. shouldn't be taking credit. No. Okay, that's that's good to know. Good They're to doing know. it because they want to, not because yeah, we told them to. That's right. They need, they need food. Uh, President Trump was in Cleveland, Ohio over the weekend for a tax policy event in which he insisted devoting much of his attention to immigration. They don't want the wall, but we're going to get the wall. And if we have to think about closing up the country for a while, Trump said, we're going to get the wall. We have no choice. We have absolutely no choice. And we're going to get tremendous security in our country. It is unclear what he meant by closing up up the country means you just lock the door is that what it is yeah is there a door oh yeah there's one big door okay i know he i know he talked about having a big wall and like a beautiful door in the wall and then we could have control that way but i mean there's no wall at the moment so how do you close the country if you don't already have the thing which with you said was going to close no you you just close it is that it okay yeah it's just just close it i don't see what the big deal is I I love when he just sits on a panel and starts talking. It's just, it's great. It's lots of fun for everyone. It's really the best way to do, do like, governmental policy. Sure. Just do it right there on the fly. Surprise, everybody. Finally, a positive story. Sylvia Bloom, a legal secretary from Brooklyn, worked for the same law firm for 67 years while Hmm. quietly amassing a fortune. In her will, she left more than $8 million for scholarships for needy students. Wow. She retired at age 96 and died not long afterwards in 2016. Uh, it says, how did she do it? How did yeah. she amass her fortune? It was actually about $9 million that she was able to put together. How did she do it? By shrewdly observing the investments made by the lawyers that she worked for. Jane Lockenshire, a niece, uh, she was a secretary in an era where they ran their boss's lives, including their personal investments. So when the boss would buy a stock, she would make the purchase for him and then buy the same stock for herself, but in a smaller amount. She took the subway to work, lived in a rent-controlled apartment, though she could have lived on Park Avenue. Wow. She was a child of the Depression, and she knew what it was like not to have any money. A friend, uh, Paul Hyams, told the New York Times she is a great. She had great empathy for other people who were needy and wanted everyone to have a fair shake in life. Boy, that's cool. So she saved money by watching her bosses and doing the same thing they did at a lower amount and amassed a fortune. That's amazing. But they, they, she gave away so these kids could go to college. I've been trying to do the exact same thing with Don. Is that what it is? Just watch yeah. Don, see what he yeah. does? Yeah. All right. But he doesn't invest, uh, to my knowledge, he doesn't tell me his investments. So 
That's a little rude. No. So what I've been doing is bringing a little. I bring my lunch. Okay. Like Don does in a little, you know, cooler bag. Okay. I do that. All right. That's good. I'm thinking of buying a Prius because mm. Don has a Prius. Really? Yeah. He also has a huge truck. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and a camper. Right. I'm thinking of getting a camper. I remember the day that you guys all scurried out to the parking lot yeah. and tried to climb in the camper. It was fun to watch from yeah. up here in the office. Like, what are you guys doing? I jumped in. I jumped in the bed and I'm like, pretend like I'm asleep. Pretend like I'm asleep. <laughs> it's so odd. Those were fun times. Yeah. Good old Don. Don's out of town today, so he's not probably enjoying this as much as we are. Hey, uh, more straight ahead. We're going to be talking about um, how to to manage your overconfidence. you got to be careful. A lot of us uh, get overconfident when we don't have the information or the actual insight to back it up. We'll talk about why that happens and what we should do about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, each of us can uh, can be a little overconfident at times. Have you ever had the experience where you walked into something thinking, you know, a situation thinking that, oh, I can handle this, I've got this, only to find out that you blew it. You uh, you didn't quite have the insight you you thought you needed. You didn't have the information you needed. But isn't it weird how you could still walk in confident? And uh, we wanted to find out where this confidence comes from, what makes us overconfident. So who better to uh, to talk about it than Carmen Sanchez, who is a graduate student at Cornell University in the Department of Psychology. And Carmen does research in social and personality psychology. Her most recent publication is called Overconfidence Among Beginners. And it's it uh, is a little learning a dangerous thing. Carmen, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. This is uh, this seems like a, a pretty important thing to recognize in ourselves that sometimes we have more confidence than we have information. Yeah, I definitely think I, I definitely got this research by my own experiences of feeling overconfident. Isn't that wild? I, and why do we do that? Why do we feel overconfident if we actually aren't very informed about the issue? Well, I want to step back and say, though there is a lot of research looking at what you just said, so, so there is some research saying that people that are the, perform at the bottom are the most likely to be overconfident. What I study is a little bit different. So what I study are tasks that people have never, ever done before. So, for example, if you're learning the skydive, so things that we've never done before, I actually find that people aren't overconfident in those mm. types of things. People are actually terrible. And they know just how terrible they are. That's but after they've required a little bit of learning, that's what leads to high levels of overconfidence, even though you're still not very good at it. Interesting. So, so having learned a little bit more, um, we, we still end up gathering and feeling more confident than we probably should because we, we haven't, you know, we haven't mastered the issue. Yeah, and that results in a bunch of catastrophic errors that people can commit. So basically, it leads to higher risk taking, which can then make you do all sorts of things. Talk about that. I mean, you you even cite research with surgeons, with airplane pilots. Talk about uh, what what you mean about how that confidence eventually makes us over-risk. Well, there are these really two interesting papers. One's about um, aviation fatality accidents. It's basically which pilots are the most likely to kill people. 
And at first they believed that people that were just learning to fly, so people that didn't have a lot of experience with a lot of different types of events, were the most vulnerable to basically killing people when they were flying. But this researcher named Nitsch, he researched um, the error rate. So basically, um, according to total flight hours or experience level of a flight, of a, um, of a pilot who was most likely to kill people. And he found that it wasn't novice pilots, the new people that were learning to fly, or people that had been doing it for a long time. So it was people in the mid-range of experience. And he actually calls this the killing zone, which is a little bit terrifying. Yeah, totally. And so these are people and, that, that they weren't new, but they, mm-hmm. weren't, they weren't, you know, senior pilots. They were somewhere in yep. between. Yeah. Yes, that's when people are the most vulnerable to committing errors, and people are most likely to commit errors when they're overconfident. And there's this other uh, research about um, doctors that I think is really interesting. So um, it might tell you which doctor to go to based off of yeah. this research. <laughs> so there's this really complicated type of surgery that requires um, a robot be used to place these screws into your vertebrae. And um, these researchers measured across experience level who's the most likely to make a mistake. And the first five are required to be done under supervision. And he found that there wasn't a significant spike in the misplacement of these screws until between the 16th and 20th surgery. So those kind of like that had a mid-range amount of, of learning. And luckily, um, the error rates declined with experience level in that research. Wow. So, you know, the new the the novice, the new person, um not a problem, but uh about 20 surgeries in, 15 to 20 surgeries in, I guess they're starting to get what? What's going on in their head that would make them more dangerous? More confident. Well, I think I think when you're first learning something, you're more likely to ask other people for advice or just use caution in general because you know that you don't know what you're doing. Right? Right. And so then when you kind of get a couple things right, you're like, you know what, I'm pretty awesome. And then when you start thinking you're awesome, that's basically when overconfidence is going to settle in. Interesting. So you, in your research, um, you're trying to figure out how just how a little bit of learning is more dangerous than maybe years and years of learning is is what got you interested in this topic at all? What, what made you go this direction? Or no learning, by the way. Or no learning, um, right. So I actually, all of this research is in collab- collaboration with Professor David Dunning. And he um, researches something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. So at the time, he had a grad student named Justin Kruger. And Justin Kruger and David Dunning wrote a paper where they ranked people based off of how well they were performing and then had people perform a task. And he found that the biggest gap between actual and perceived ability is in the bottom quartile on knowledge. So we just had a little chat one day because I noticed that he was getting a lot of um, citations for, so people approach learning with overconfidence. So we just had a discussion about basically whenever I learn something new, I always feel stupid. Hmm. And after I have acquired a little bit of um, knowledge, that's when I start thinking I'm overconfident. And, at, and in his task in those research, they never use things that are people are truly have never done before. So basically, it was just off of some conversations with him that we developed this research idea. Oh, it's interesting. How do you how do you see that this impacts us in you know day to day life? Just the average um, person. 
Um, well, I think that we're constantly bombarded with information and we're having to use this information to make decisions. So something like as boring as like what time to decide to go to the grocery store, right? So we're like, oh, I'm definitely going to go at like six because I know it'll be empty. But there's just a bunch of variables, like whether other things are going on in town, and there's so much going around uh, around us that could impact whether this grocery store is going to be full. So I find that most most learning is this type of learning that I research, which is like probabilistic learning. There's multiple things going around in the world around us, and we have to learn which decisions to make or not. Is um, I mean, you could see this. Uh, I mean, I guess part of it is to question almost question your confidence a little bit. Like, is it earned? Is it deep enough? And by the way, why would we feel this confidence? Um, it seems like we would have learned over time to be a little more humble about what we know. That's what one would hope, but I, I don't think that's humanity. I think that when you're doing something and it's new and you have an idea about how to do something, and it doesn't really matter if the idea is right or wrong, this causes overconfidence to develop. And I guess we need the confidence in order to do stuff. Yeah. Also, though I'm knocking overconfidence in this paper, it's associated with a bunch of positive things. So if you are constantly down on yourself, you might not want to learn anything anymore. The surge in confidence may cause people to persist in tasks they wouldn't otherwise persist in. That's interesting, isn't it? Is it um, – and uh, I mean is this something we're supposed to watch against? I mean how do we go again about you know, fixing it? How do we go about not making those mistakes because our confidence is too high? Well, there's not – um, a ton of research on how uh, to fix overconfidence as you're learning, but there is some um, research about how to guard against overconfidence as you're performing a task. So like if you're taking an exam or something like that. So something that you can do is right when you feel that surge of overconfidence, what I do since I research this is I just tell myself no. <laughs> and when you tell yourself no, you can do like several techniques, like consider what are the alternatives and why they might also be possible. And that's been found in some other research to decrease overconfidence. And so I guess part of the key is recognizing that the overconfidence is kicking in um, and then uh, basically labeling it, telling yourself, no, OK, no, we're not doing that. We've got so much more to do here. Um, and then and then um, I, I guess looking for, I mean, looking to keep learning. Yeah, I think people, I I definitely think people should keep learning. And even if you can't recognize when you're getting far too confident, when you have to make a decision, like think about the alternatives and why the alternatives might also be the case. This really then is kind of learning theory, isn't it? This is just about how Um, we learn what and what impedes us from learning. Yeah, but I also think it keeps us learning as well, unfortunately. Because when you feel, you know, right when you're learning something and you're like, oh, I got this, it kind of keeps you wanting to explore more, when in reality that feeling might also cause you to take greater risks that have negative consequences. Hmm. Is there there, um, a a certain – so I guess young and naive is one thing, but um, (laughs) a little advanced and naive is even worse, it sounds like. So the goal would be to to somehow get – stay – Humble and teachable, learnable, willing, long enough that you reach a point where I guess you're informed and no longer naive. 
that sounds like the dream, but maybe you should just um, use one of the techniques to decrease overconfidence instead because uh, catching yourself where you are in your learning curve is, is quite difficult. Oh, I bet. Does it matter what age you are? Does Is this different with teenagers versus, you know, 50-year-olds? Well, I have two studies where I looked at um, how knowledgeable people were in the, of their finances across their lifespan. And what I found is that um, across so I, the youngest people in my age group were around 18. And I, I forgot how old the oldest people are, but they're over 65 years old. So finance is a great example because, unfortunately, our um, school system doesn't really teach things about personal finance. So most people learn about home loans and things like this by trial and error. So they stumble, they fall, and they continue to engage in increasingly riskier financial transactions across their lifespan. Right. So what I found in those studies is that um, as people get older, they get better and better at financial type things. But um, confidence follows the same curvilinear pattern that I explored in my laboratory studies. So at first, people aren't very confident and they're terrible. Then around age, I think about 25, they start thinking they're awesome and this flattens out across the lifespan. And then it increases again in late adulthood. Mm. Wow. So um, one of the things, I guess, uh, you've got, I mean, because it seems like your approach to this is, you're, this is kind of a new area, new field in a way. Where do you see this going from here? What's your future research going to be on? <laughs> well, I have some research that hopefully uh, is successful. So I just submitted it to a journal for publication. It's about how, as you're learning, how to dampen your overconfidence without negatively impacting learning. So that's hmm. something I'm really interested in. And something else that I've um, thought about exploring are um, – how people across the lifespan learn different things. So um, just anecdotally, uh, uh, younger people may be overconfident as they're learning something compared to people that are in the um, older adults because they've had less time to fail at things, basically. Oh, interesting. Is it uh, – does it matter uh, – it seems like this confidence, does it actually impact our sense of self? Um, or is it just is, – is our confidence about our learning kind of a transitory thing that – or are there people that just have more confidence about themselves? So learning for them, they're always more confident. Well, there's some research in this area. I haven't explored it within my own studies, but it basically says that men tend to be more overconfident than women. Yeah. And I did – I don't think this made it in any research that I have, but in my study about the finances, uh, men were better at the personal financial knowledge across the lifespan, but they were so much more confident that they were more overconfident in mm. their abilities about personal finance. Sounds right. Sounds totally right. <laughs> and I may be biased because I am a man, but it totally sounds right. Well, that's awesome, Carmen. Um, what else? Anything else we should know about uh, what makes us confident and, 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 and our learning and how they go hand in hand? Um, anything else that you should know? Well, I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's just important as you're learning to, to try and be humble, even though you're getting that surge in confidence. And that way we can all make better decisions. I think that's great. Great advice. Man, 
Not easy, though. Carmen Sanchez is her name. Again, she's a graduate student in psychology at Cornell University and uh, joined us to talk about her research. Overconfidence among beginners. Is a little learning a dangerous thing? Uh, Not as much as maybe, you know, a few months of learning (laughs) might even be more dangerous. Interesting stuff. Well, we'll continue the journey straight ahead. Uh, Do a little Coach's Corner. This is Matt Townsend doing what we can on the show to give you the tools you need to live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. You know, as we talk about uh, confidence and overconfidence and how we got to be careful, right, because our learning may, um, you know, impact your level of confidence, there, there is, there's the other side of this whole argument where we, we lack confidence and we, we really don't believe enough in ourselves. And what I've seen a lot of times happen in those situations is we tend to, to be um, very quick to use a technique called the I'm sorry syndrome, right? We fall into this syndrome of very quickly learning to just apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wanted to bring up, I'm sorry. Don't even, don't even need to say it. I'm just so sorry. But you don't even know it. We don't need to talk about it. I'm sorry. I'm already sorry. Do you have the sorry syndrome? Here are a few questions that you can ask yourself to see if you're too quick to just apologize for everything. Has anyone in your life told you that you apologize too much? Have you personally noticed that you apologize a lot? And do you really feel sorry for the other person when you say the words, I'm sorry? Are you using the words, I'm sorry, as a sincere gesture because you feel bad? Or are you using them, have you ever noticed, just because they work? It's a technique. And it's a fast way to move things along. Um, I think a lot of us might be prone to just quickly say, I'm sorry. I've seen a lot of uh, partnerships where um, whoever, you know, maybe the husband ends up saying, I'm sorry, a lot uh, simply because the wife has more energy about wanting to talk about a few things. And in an effort to not have to talk about it, he just knows he's supposed to apologize. (laughs) But to apologize when you don't know what you're apologizing for it seems a little empty, doesn't it? It seems a little fake. And so be careful. Uh, it's not necessarily harmful to apologize, but it does impact how others see you. It impacts how you see yourself. And you you might end up coming off kind of like a doormat if in your office place you're always, always apologizing. Um, sometimes you're not wrong. And sometimes there's just misinformation or misunderstanding about why you may have done something, it doesn't always necessarily require an apology at first. So be careful of it because just as being overly confident might stop us from learning, as we just learned from our guest, um, so it's true too that uh, apologizing too quickly without really feeling sorry might actually be impeding your learning as well. So why do we spend so much time apologizing if in fact we're not really feeling sorry for what we've done? One reason might be it's just a habit. You know, just like most things, most things in life, we, we actually may not be thinking about what we're saying or doing. We just use it. Some of us may use I'm sorry as a placeholder, kind of like the word um or you know what I mean? Uh, we, we may also have learned it from mom or from dad or from somewhere else, and we just use it as a, ha- a habit. So be careful not to use it as a habit. We also may be saying I'm sorry quickly because we really do want to make others happy. 
Just like kissing your child's, you know, boo-boo when he skins his knee. Oh, let me give that a kiss. It's not necessarily helping. It's just it's just a way to maybe show empathy and concern. Um, now, it makes sense if you actually do feel sad or sorry for somebody. But sometimes for you to apologize when you're not at fault actually may make it may make the relational situation a little bit worse because the person that's that you're dealing with they may know deep down that they need to apologize. You also might notice a system to your apologies that you have to apologize more because your spouse or significant other other never apologizes. But be careful of that because always apologizing would mean that you are the one to blame, right? So it's it's I get that it's a good thing and um but it's even a better thing if it's done attentively in the present um in the right moment when it needs to be done. It also might be good that other people around you learn to apologize too and if you're too quick to apologize are you stealing the opportunity from them to learn how and when they need to apologize. It might be better that you learn other things to say instead of I'm sorry. Um you know and and instead of apologizing ask what the other person is thinking and feeling. Get into what their issue is. Have you ever apologized, by the way, for something that wasn't the real issue that that was even brought up? So you're just trying to quickly apologize for something, and yet the real issue could have been something completely different. We need to watch out. And I'm not saying don't apologize, but uh, a couple things that we can do to, to make sure we're not so quick to always be the one apologizing is ask yourself, are you really sorry? Do you really actually feel sorry for what you've done or are you trying to just do so, say so, so that you can kind of use this as a technique to get out of the situation? Truly evaluate why you're doing it and, and why you're choosing to do it. Do you um, Are you really sincere about it? Do you say it more out of fear? Are you saying you're sorry out of fear? Are you saying you're sorry out of a way to control the situation? Are you saying you're sorry because it's efficient? Figure out why you're really saying it. And instead, let's uh, try to get into the heart of the situation. Try to actually have a discussion. Ask questions. Reflect more about what, you know, what really happened to the other person that you should be sorry about. And find out you know, if there's more to the discussion. There's so much that could come out of that conversation if we could just allow it to come out. And um, some some things we might be able to do is just actually slow down the conversation. It seems like many times the I'm sorry is is the solution, but what we might want to do is spend more time on the understanding. I can see this really hurt you. I want to know more about what you felt when I did such and such a thing and let them explain it. Just know that you can always apologize after, right? But let's spend a little bit more time making sure we understand what we're actually apologizing for. Then what it does is it actually makes the value of our apology even more valuable, right? Because they now see that, oh, he's apologizing informed. People like it when you actually know why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and it, it it could actually create a pretty cool, I think, response for everybody as we get into this. So watch out. It's just it's just an idea. Be careful that you're not falling into relational traps of just quick reactive responses that don't necessarily feel or aren't really sincere because if they're not, in the end, um, 
you'll pay for it one way or another. You're going to pay for the apology, or you're going to build a system where one of you maybe is the only one that ever apologizes. Why would we both need to apologize if one of you is always apologizing? Be careful. We're trying to make our relationships healthy and balanced as we go through this, and uh, sincere and, and real. That's the goal, and that's the goal of this program. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger and lead healthier lives. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, on the show, we talk a lot about how to improve your marriage um, and some some simple tricks and techniques. Uh, we talk about, you know, communication and conflict resolution. But some of our best fixes might be, um, might be, you know, even out of sight, out of mind in your world. For example, eating healthier, sleeping more. Do you think they help? Well, according to um, a professor, Dr. Lee Johnson, who's an associate professor here at uh, Brigham Young University in the, in the Department of Family Life, he was on the show a while ago and gave us some of the keys that will improve your marriage. We were talking about the importance of getting regular sleep, and I started the interview by uh, asking for some tips on getting regular sleep. Well, and one of the things that I tell people when I'm trying to get them to regulate their sleep, it, just some quick, we could go into a lot of that, but is to quit looking at clocks in the middle of the night. They'll, they'll wake up to go to the bathroom or to stir and like, what time is it? And it, they'll look at the clock and then their brain starts to race of, oh, I've only got two more hours. I've got to get back to sleep quickly. It's true. And the, you know, then we're back to this cycle we've been talking about because sleep is a natural response. You can't force it, right, but they're right. trying to force it. So if they just turn their clock around or put their phone on the other side of the room so they can't see what time it is when they wake up, their brain doesn't kick into this pattern. Yeah, and then see some will get up Turn lights on. Or yeah. And the minute you're doing that, you're in a whole different... Well, and it's amazing people, things they watch before they go to bed. Mm-hmm. I mean, screen time before bed is not a good thing. Yeah. Especially if you're watching suspense shows or horror shows or listening to really loud music or a lot of people, you know, drink coffee or diet oh, yeah. coke until 10 o'clock at night. In fact, we had an expert on that was telling us no caffeine after three. That's what I tell my clients. Yeah. Two to three is when you cut out the caffeine. Because it stays in your system, right. whether it impacts you or not. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I'm so used to it. My kids will like walk in the house with some caffeinated beverage at 10, and I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, what are you thinking? Yeah. They're like, that's it, Dad. I'm not thinking. I'm just trying to be a kid. I'm just kid. trying to be a kid. <laughs> well, stop it. What is the hobby? Um, I know hobbies, but like if golfing for me doesn't alleviate stress, and I, but maybe it's not, I'm not good enough at it. Yeah. Um, but hobbies, to me, I love just the fact that it's, it gives you something that you can get good at and, and feel good about yourself. As long as it's not, I mean, if you're taking golf to the level where you're too serious about it, yeah. it can be very stressful. But if you're just going out there and enjoy it and not stress over, you know, I'm out here in the sun. It's beautiful. Yeah. The golf course is gorgeous. It's nice weather. I'm with my friends. And, you know, I hit a bad shot. It's not the end of the world, right. which is hard when you golf sometimes. I've, I've done that and it becomes more stressful than relaxing. <laughs> it totally does. But you need it? to focus on the relaxing parts of it. What, and I guess what's cool is as a couple, we could help each other with this. If the real issue is the reaction, right? then what are some tools or tips we could use to – to catch the pattern of the fight or flight earlier as a couple. So just because if I, I assume if we could agree together how we would handle our fight or flight moment, right. 
and have it kind of worked out a little bit or orchestrated, that seems it's, to help. It's hard to come to an agreement. I mean it's a, it's a great idea. That's the hypothetically, idea. Yeah. Hypothetically, but it's hard to do that because you're, it's pre-conscious. Right, exactly. So what, what we kind of work on is having people um, kind of cut each other some slack. Right. Right. So if you can get to a place where you're not going to that, that worthless place or that unworthy place or that not good enough place – and you're you're just assuming you get to a place where you can assume your spouse is doing the best they can and they're yeah. not out to get you. Yeah. Now, if abusive situations are completely different, right. if course, you're being abused, you got to go. It's, get It's safe. all different. Get help. Yeah. yeah. This is about just dysfunctional relationships. Yeah. Which are yeah. Um. So they need to go to a place where they can kind of cut each other some slack and realize that okay, maybe that wasn't intended to put me in that worthless spot. Or right. It wasn't because I'm, I have a personality flaw or something right. like that. That's the best thing. And then the other thing is they can have conversations at some point in time about what types of things produce anxiety in them. So it's not really about how do I say it because you, yeah. you're not going to change your way right. you speak. Right. But if you can get to that place where you can say, okay, when you, you – know, hey, honey, we need to talk. That sends everyone's heart racing uh, when, you're, when you're dating and right, you break right. up. Hey, can I talk to you? I'm like, oh, crap. What did what I did do? I do? What did I do? She hates me. And, yeah. and even you know, after years of marriage, my wife says, hey, can I talk to you? Sometimes it's like, ooh, what do I we do? have to? <laughs> yeah. And I've learned over the years that she just wants to talk. Right. But it can be that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe make it – I mean and part of that could be just – let's say it another way. Like I mean but together. I, I always right. call that like a, like a, um, a cue. Like yeah. if, she, if she wants to talk, just say, you got five minutes? And yeah. even tell me, you got five minutes to talk about what happened at your mom's right. house. Because if I could know what's happening, right. that's not half as scary as it's, like, it's, yeah. can we talk? Can we talk? And the other thing is, is it's taking personal responsibility. So when my wife says, hey, can we talk, and my heart rate goes up and my physiology starts to kick in that survival right. mode, that's my responsibility to say, okay, this isn't the end of my marriage. This is not right. anything big deal. I need to calm down and find out what she wants to talk about. Totally. Rather than you know, so it's it's about taking personal responsibility for yeah. your reactions as well. It also seems like the more you do that. You're training your brain that maybe you don't need to overreact to this moment right. because it's like if every time – it's Pavlovian, I guess. Every time if you said, can we talk, I ended up getting an ice cream cone. Yeah, that would be a good thing, right? Then I'd be like, sweet. Let's yeah. talk all you want. Say that anytime you want. But So if we can just start proving to our brain that it's not – this isn't – talking isn't really a life or death thing. Right. But most of the time it ends up being – it's being run by fight or flight. Right. So it seems like life or death. Right. It's scary. Humans are weird. Yeah, we are. Why is that, Lee? I mean, you think we have, no have figured this out by now. It's amazing how much we don't know about our <laughs> totally. bodies. Well, and it's also amazing. You just watch one episode of Cops. I have never watched Cops. Have you? Oh, you've got to watch oh, okay. it, Lee. You'll, you'll never be the same. Uh, that's where we found Ben, by the way. And um, But it's just these fighter – you can just see the fight or flight kick in. Yeah. And you can see him running and you're like, don't run. Yeah. There's cops everywhere. Yeah. You're not going to get away. away. Yeah, but the fight or flight is about survival. And your big point here is, your every, everything runs through that fight or flight part of your brain and the connection parts. So yeah, those two parts and the connection yeah. part. So, and and if you're not connecting, that could I guess reinvigorate your fears, your fight yeah. or flight, and, because you they're mutually exclusive. Basically, there are yeah. times when they're both on, but basically, when your fight or flight is on, you can't connect to people. It's true. And so we've got to improve that balance so we're in that connection side more than the fight or flight. 
That was Dr. Lee Johnson, again, an associate professor in the Department of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, uh, talking to us about how we can improve our marriages by improving what we eat, how we sleep, and by getting a hobby. Great insights. And again, we'll continue doing what we can to give you the information and the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. This is The Matt Townsend Show. And uh, can't do the show without you, so stick with us. More fun ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Monday to you. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Becca and Terry. Becca's back in town after a long or a week-long trip. I'm back. You're I'm back. back from London. Did you love it? Oh, it was amazing. Really beautiful place. Sounded more Irish than... Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. I'm... Did you get to Ireland? <laughs> so, Don't uh, tell me not to quit my day job. Favorite, favorite part of London, other than the food, of course. Other than the food. The buses. Fatbergs. Oh, and the Fatbergs. Did you find any Fatbergs? What what is that? Oh, never mind. A fatberg. It would be a huge congealed mass of uh, oh. cooking oil and other debris found in sewers. All oh oh, that's right. Yeah, London. We uh, spent an inordinate amount of time on the show that's, talking about it. I forgot. I forgot about that. We, we had a researcher on who's uh-huh. trying to figure out what to do with such material. We yeah. spent a lot of time on this. Lots of good stuff. After eating some of the food there, I can see why you'd have a problem with Lots of grease, right? fatbergs. Yeah. Right. Mm, grease. Yeah. No fatbergs except the ones running through my own arteries mm. after yeah. that trip. So you like the buses and you like the food and um, just the smell of fatberg wafting up from the sewers. Uh, yep. That probably sums it up. Did you see the eye? Yeah, I did. Did you go on the eye? I think Didn't I've seen go that. On it. I've seen it's that destroyed expensive. about five or six times in movies. Yeah, it's really oh. a favorite landmark. They keep to take rebuilding down. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we went. We one time we were there. We went on it. Another time it wasn't working. Apparently, he had conjunctivitis. Mm. Ah, so um, lots going on today. Boy, uh, SNL had a, a whole slew of new actors playing different parts. Um, yeah. For uh, with President Trump, Andy Cohen was his is his name Andy Cohen, who was yeah Andy uh, was played by the actor Ben Siller. Yeah, he was lost on the street and he got mixed up with his cell phones because he had multiple phones and he kept picking it up and like Amorosa was on one line. He's like, nope, not yeah. talking to you. And yeah, just it's kind of interesting, incre- incredible. They had a lot Martin Short, I think. I mean, a lot of actors. So you know. Something to to watch out for. Yeah. You know they love the president once they can get all of these stars involved to be part of it. Uh, by the way, big announcement apparently coming from Melania Trump today about she's a, she's launching her platform with children. About online bullying or yeah. bullying in general? Yeah, yeah. She seems to know a lot about yes, bullying. Yeah, she may have some firsthand experience possibly. Yeah, Uh Maybe yeah, and she's going to help the kids so that she'll. That this will be her first, um, her first press conference on her own. Just nice. She's just out and about doing it. So that's going on. Press of plus, of course, Rudy Giuliani still um, out there 
helping President Trump. So let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? President Trump's new personal attorney, Rudolph Giuliani, like his name is Rudolph. Rudolph! Yeah, told reporters Saturday his client is committed to regime change in Iran, which Giuliani cast as a way to make Tehran a U.S. and Israeli ally. Trump suggested as much on Twitter in December, responding to news of anti-government protests in Iran by saying that Iran is failing at every level. It is, now this is all in caps, time for change, with an exclamation point. He did not specifically say whether he meant forcible U.S.-led regime change like that in Iraq or Libya. The United States' last round of regime change in Iran in the 1950s. Uh, The CIA orchestrated a coup that ousted a Democratic elected government, installed a pro-U.S. monarch, and set in motion the events that created the present Iranian government, which is the basis for poor U.S.-Iran relations to this day. Yeah, that didn't go so well. Tehran, meanwhile, issued a warning Saturday against any U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, which Trump has threatened. If America leaves the deal, this will entail historic regret, the Iranian president said. Hmm. Well, and by the way, all of this on some statement, I mean, what does it mean? We don't know. No, just some random thing on Twitter. Yeah. And then Giuliani's like, yeah, we're doing this, even though there's been history to show that it's not necessarily the best approach. Facebook has routinely introduced thousands of Islamic State fighters to each other and inadvertently expanded the terrorist network with its suggested friends feature. You know, you're scrolling through Facebook and it says, here's some people you may know. Here's some other people that may want have terroristic ideals. A study conducted by the Counter Extremism Project analyzed the Facebook activity of 1,000 ISIS supporters in 96 countries and found that the social media giant's efforts to connect users with common interests had actually helped the recruiting efforts of... ISIS. This in the Telegraph over the weekend. Gregory Waters, one of the study's authors, tells the Telegraph that he was inundated with suggestions for pro-ISIS friends. After making contact with a single extremist, another researcher reportedly received dozens of similar friend suggestions after reading a news story about an Islamic uprising in the Philippines. Wow. Thanks, Twitter. Good job, Facebook. Connecting people. The National Security Agency collected 534 million records of Americans' calls and texts in 2017. The annual agency report published Friday indicated tripling its 2016 collection rate. So the NSA has tripled their efforts. They're they're doing better. On us. The surveillance in question focused on metadata, which means an NSA records records the source and recipient of each communication rather than its content. The agency is able to collect details like time, duration, contact information, and even the number of characters in a text message, but not necessarily wow. the context of the text message. Yeah. If that makes any sense. The millions of records the NSA collected in the 27, in 2017 stem from the agency's targeting of the communication of just 40 people. Wow. So 40 people led to 530, uh, 534 million records. Wow. Yeah. Those were busy people. So 40 people, and then you take all their contacts and all their connections, phone right. calls, text messages, right. let out to 534 million. Sheesh. That's efficiency right there. That's some serious and Most of it probably housed in Lehigh, Utah. Yeah. Geologists, it's right off the freeway. You just drive right by. It's right right over there on the hill. Geologists in Hawaii said seismic activity lessened Sunday on the big island near the erupting Kilauea volcano. Mm. Uh, Events measure, they were extreme the day before. They said 31 magnitude 2 quakes from an astounding 152 level 3 events the day earlier. Yeah. Little tremors. They had a six point something over the weekend I saw. Just lots of seismic activity centered on the volcano. Oh, it's wow. not like it's a guess where this yeah. is coming from. At least 26 homes have been destroyed in the neighboring uh, subdivisions 
With nearly 1,800 residents now evacuated, scientists announced two additional fissures have emerged, bringing the total to 10 cracks surrounding the peak. Civil defense officials are saying, uh, gawking public, stay away. Yeah, we don't need you here now. Not needed. Do With not noxious watch. fumes, too. I mean, why would yeah. you want to get too close? Well, it's a volcano. Yeah, it's also death. <laughs> Careful, they may throw you in. They could. Finally, Oreos. There's new Oreos. So look out for the Oreos. We okay, like, we what like are we new doing? Oreos. What are we doing with them now? Uh, cherry cola flavored Oreos. Hmm. You okay? No one asked for that. <laughs> so it's kind of a cherry flavor. It's got the popping candy in it, so you get kind of the bubble oh, effect. Oh, that'll be fun. Mm, I had some of those before. Not so good. They're, they're basically knockoff Pop Rocks. They can't For whatever reason, they couldn't actually get Pop Rocks, which worked pretty well to give yeah. you that sort of sensation. They went to some... Secondary brand, I guess, and it doesn't off, seem to, off Pop Rocks. Off brand Pop, Pop Rocks. Don't do that. There's a kettle corn Oreo. Ugh. So you got kind of the, they call it the blonde cookie, the, the yeah. lighter cookie, mm-hmm. with uh, the kind of the, it says with puffed millet pieces. Puffed millet pieces. So you get that popcorn y sort of texture inside the cream filling of yeah. the. Sounds more like they're trying to venture into the breakfast cereal yeah. industry. Yeah. I don't know. Don't think so? I'm more Puffed of a brunette Oreo myself. Okay. Well, I mean, they just try. So I think it's an option. I mean, yeah, it is a it is an option. And then they have uh, the pina colada Oreos. Okay. Interesting. A little coconut flavor. A little coconut flavoring, but they're thins. Have you ever had the thins? No. It makes you feel like you're doing something healthy even though you're just eating a cookie. Well, that And combined... it makes you want to eat more. Uh-huh. Yeah. We have, uh, we, we, we found salted caramel or caramel, mm. depending on your regional distinction. Or caramel. Or caramel. Uh, thin cookies, and we've been, you know, but sampling But a thin those. Oreo? Yeah. It's like super thin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they don't even exist. It's like half the calories because it's half the filling. So let me get this straight. All Same amount of money, but half the filling. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant marketing play. <laughs> that is a great play. Uh, thin. It's basically a weight loss product. Totally. It's trying to be. It's not, though. It's still just sugar. Ooh, it does look good, though. Yeah. Pina Colada Oreo Thins. Mm. I would try that one. With a blonde Oreo, not a brunette Oreo. My wife uh, buckled over the weekend. <gasps> she sorry. succumbed to temptation and oh. purchased Oreo cereal. Really? Yeah. For who? The house, I guess. Yeah, okay. But you don't eat cereal, do you? No, but I had some. It's all right. Hmm. Just in a sense of, you know, take a handful, eat it. You don't like milk and everything on there you know having a bowl of cereal but you just kind of eat it by the handful it's not bad oreo cereal for a straight up sugar product yeah it's good i don't know if it tastes like oreos but you know close enough we'll ask dr ron how that works on the health on the box yeah it says it takes 59 minutes to make one oreo really does that seem efficient well no but it says right on the box 59 minutes to make an Oreo. How long does it take you to consume an Oreo? And that's what it said. Is That was the question it asked, which is like 5.9 seconds. Yeah. If you chew. See, that's why humans are much more efficient than Oreo companies. Interesting. Just a little fact. It takes one hour to make an Oreo. I don't know. I mean, it makes sense. Though. I mean, if you, you got to make from, the whole mix, you, you got to. Yeah. yeah. Find the, the pseudo food products to, to put into the. Don't add the word pseudo. Why not? They're just they're just food products. Deradiating them. Yeah, yeah. Takes time. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got to get that waxy glimmer. Oh, the wax. Polishing them. Yeah, you gotta that's pol- right. <laughs> polish your Oreos. 
Oh, those are good times. It reminds me of a child, my childhood, when I used to polish them Oreos. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking with Dr. Kim, not Dr. Kim Giles, but Kim Giles. She's one of our great contributors here on the show. And Kim, uh, she's going to be talking to us. What do you do when the world is just falling out around you, when it's just collapsing on you and you feel like you can't take anymore? You're inundated with problems and issues. Kim will help us through. Doctor, not doctor. I keep wanting to make her a doctor. Well, let's see. Because she makes us feel so much better. Maybe she became a doctor since the last time I talked to her. Kim Giles up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Joining us now is Kimberly Giles, who's president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching and the 12 Shapes Relationship System. She's a regular guest on the program. She also hosts an internet radio show called Relationship Radio every Thursday on voiceamerica.com. Also uh, is a speaker, an author, and just an all-around incredible woman. That's a great introduction. Thanks, Matt. That's it. All around great. All around. Hope everybody thinks that. They all do. Of course they do. And today you're talking to us about how to deal with life when it's kind of caving in on us, when it seems impossibly hard, when you're losing hope, everything seems to be going wrong. And then another thing tips you over. Yeah. And you know what? If this isn't happening to you right now, wait, stick around. Yeah, give it a few right? months. Give it a few months. Because <laughs> we all get a Everyone turn. Everyone gets there. Yeah. We get a turn. And this journey is not for wimps, no. is it? No, no, no. It's hard. And um, and then the the role of healthy always changes, right? So sometimes you're the healthy one. So, uh, you know. Like mentally, emotionally yeah. stable. You and, seem more and stable, more healthy. And, and then just in a few months, you're the unhealthy one that's yeah. upside down. And everybody's helping you. Yeah. You're the turtle on your back. Yeah. And and it's nice. We take turns. So mm-hmm. we have somebody to support us through that's the right. hard part. But, you know, a lot of us. When life has been fairly easy and this hard stuff hits, it's quite a shock to our system. And we can get really down, anxious, depressed, hopeless. Oh, it's ugly. I mean, it gets dark. Well, too, we we start to get mad. You might get mad at God or life or all of a sudden all these – because you're a good person. You're doing good things. Right. And And I hear this from people a lot. I think a lot of us have this sort of false idea that if you're a good person, then you should be blessed and only good things should happen yeah. to you. And so when you've done everything right and horrible things happen, you're – what is going this on? This isn't fair. This isn't Why right. Why should I do all these good things if it's still going to be bad? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk today about things you can do to get through. And a lot of them end up being mindset things yeah. because – Often we really can't change the situation no, we're in. Right. There's very little in our control. You are here. This is the class you've apparently been signed up for. Yeah. Can't get out. So we can't change your mindset. Now, one of the interesting mindset shifts that I've kind of studied over the years is literally how you choose to view the nature of life and the journey. And I figured that you really have three options. Okay. So option number one is you view life as just random chaos. Yeah. 
And that means everybody's out there running around making choices, and they can take from you and rob you, and then there's disease that could just get you, just and random. natural disasters. Yeah. You're just at risk, and whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Life's that's just one random. life philosophy. Right. Another one I hear from people is kind of one of predestination, that things happen, everything happens for a reason. Oh, that was meant to happen to you. Oh, you know, it, it yeah. must be their time to go. And it's all predestined ahead of time. And really, you think you're making choices, but you're just playing out what yeah. was always going to happen. Yeah, it's just the script. Okay. Just play the script. So that's not option number two. Option number three is kind of the one that I've I've adopted. And, and I believe there is order in the universe. Yeah, me too. I believe that we are here to learn and that life is a classroom. Yeah. But I think there's forces at work, Matt, that work with all of our choices and moment by moment, we're, we're co-creating with the universe the perfect classroom journey for each of us. That's great. Now, that that's that's believing that there's really some intelligent forces at work in the universe. Right. But I think there is. No, totally. I see so much synchronicity and stuff that just – how can that have been an accident, right? Right. But I don't believe it was predestined. Because I do think we have agency. We get to yeah. choose whatever we want. That's right. And you have to make choices and then one choice upon another choice and then other people making choices in your world yeah. then creates this learning opportunity for Interesting you. Interesting lessons. Now, I have to tell you, I've been, I have been through a lot of these dark times. You've, had a, you've had a rough life I, and, and, and a very blessed life. Both. Yeah. There's but, the I, but I do get when I when my articles come out, I get comments that oh she has no idea yeah, how hard know. it is. Right, I do, I do, and I have to tell you, years ago when I was going through one of my really dark stages, I had somebody tell me, "You just need to have a good attitude. You just need to choose to be positive." <laughs> just... And I wanted to punch him in the teeth, <laughs> like you have no idea. Yeah, but it was around that time I read Viktor Frankl's book *Man's Search for yeah. Meaning*, and I thought, okay. In a concentration camp, this guy's got some credibility with me on dark, horrible situations. I mean, he's been through stuff I'll never even be able to imagine. So when he said that we have the power to choose our mindset, you know, okay, if he can do it, maybe I can. That seems legit. Yeah. And And I do get from his reading that he chose to believe there was meaning and purpose in the stuff that happened to us. Right. And when we see it as having that it's here for you, mm-hmm. not just it happened to you, but it's happening for you, that does make a big difference. Totally. It changes how yeah. you feel about it. The and for it's you that is one so much better. Word, it? Yeah. Because everybody says, why did this happen to me? Just change it. Why did this happen for me? What way could this actually be here to help me be stronger? Yeah. Be braver, be more loving, be wiser, have a greater understanding of the human condition and what people go through. Right. Um, you know, I've had a, a interesting challenge even the last couple months, and I keep saying, you know, it's any suffering experience helps you understand other people. No, absolutely. And what they go through. Yeah. You get knowledge from any time that you're suffering. Yeah. So choosing to trust that there's a reason you're going through this yeah. and that that reason is to make you better will help. Oh, well, so that's because that gives you – so I guess that gives you kind of the overall operating purpose why you're here. Yeah, at least it's not for nothing. Yeah, you're not just here to suffer. 
for no good reason. Yeah. You know, it's it's that's here good. to serve us. So I think that's Very a big good. one. Yeah. Um, my favorite quote from the Buddha. Yeah. Is it is your resistance to what is that causes your suffering. Yeah. And and that one's t- it took me a while to get my head around what it, what does it mean when I'm resisting what is. And it's kind of different for everybody. We have different ways of resisting. Some of us, I don't like where I am, so I'm just going to complain and and moan and be a victim and talk about it all the time and dwell in it. it that that can be resistance. Right. Resistance could be denial and refusing to yeah. look at it. Uh, it could be anything that's not accepting that this experience is here and mm-hmm. it's here to serve me. So there's this acceptance that needs to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't do anything to try to fix it. Right. But Some you, people think I should just accept it and stay here and never yeah, do any work. Yeah, never move to adjust away from it. Yeah. No, we still do all of that stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, we trust the universe that it knows what it's doing and we kind of embrace it for what it could teach us. Yeah. But I guess we – that's like that idea that – I mean I don't want to accept that my partner has these problems – so I'm just going to keep trying to correct it and fix it and adjust it and correct it and fix it and adjust it. Where if you would just accept that this is who they are, this is just who they are. Then, then find peace there and then adjust. Right. Doesn't mean you have to be with them. Doesn't mean you have to hate them. Doesn't but you mean really you can't, can't change uh, no, other people. <laughs> no. But if you accept that you actually could adjust by just accepting what they are, and then you oh, so they're not going to make two million dollars a year. Okay. Yeah. That's, I probably that's, need to just accept that they're going to make 50000 a year. And make do with it. Yeah. I need to accept that. Yeah. Okay. So what should I so do? And then, then adjust. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Okay. So I had a client just in the last few days who is going through insanely hard uh, stuff. Yeah. I mean, it is so bad. And every turn, it gets worse. And this person called me and said, seriously, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. Can't do it. I'm I done. I can't do it. I, this was my advice. When it gets that bad, you can't do it for an hour, but you could do it for five minutes. Yeah, that's great. So what what you got to do when it's that bad is what do I need to do for me to get through the next five minutes with as much joy and peace as possible? Mm. So what's the answer for this five minutes? That's great. And then do it again and do it again and do it again. Because if you try to carry the weight of oh. this could go on for years, it will crush you. Oh, yeah. Absolutely crush you. So just today, right five now, five minutes at a time. What can you do right now? You, you got five minutes. That's a great way to look at it, don't you think? Because you also, um, it, you, if you can be in the present, then you are accepting kind of the moment. You're you're just being present you're in being the now. Present, which is so much, so much of our angst and anxiousness comes from trying to live tomorrow. Well, most of our pain is coming from what we're worried is going to happen, or we're. We're hurt from that already happened in the past, neither of which you have any control over. This present moment is the only moment you have any control to choose anything. Yeah. So this moment you choose joy. And and I have to tell you, this person, the more that they played with that this weekend, said, you know what? You can choose joy. There are enough good things still around me that I could focus on being grateful for. Yeah. I mean, they may – be fewer than the problems right. or smaller than the problems, but it's all about what you focus on. Interesting. Well, and what's weird about that is if you did, if you were able to do that consistently and then, you know, 30 years later, 
you will have looked back at not all the pain, but all the little moments of joy. You would have lived a pretty joyful life. If you can do that. If you can do that. And you know That's what? That's huge. You, you can. Even though there's big trials, you can do that. Yeah. I, I hear from a lot of people who, because they haven't practiced consciously choosing mindset, they don't believe you can. Yeah. And and if it feels really hard, that's okay. Mm-hmm. We got to practice. You got to practice. Yeah. And and half of it is just remembering to do it. Yeah. So whatever you need to do, put a rubber band on your tie a string around your finger, make a screensaver on your phone to remind you to choose. Yeah. Make a choice for the next five minutes, and the more you play with that, the better you get at that's it. That's really good. And so you can do it. Absolutely, man. Oh. That's good. Give okay. us one more. So. Find someone else to serve or a passion project that's about making a difference for other people. It'll pull you out of your stuff. And I promise there are people around you, if you look hard enough. People need you. That have it worse than you do. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's so much what what you're comparing to. If you compare it to people whose lives are smooth and easy, yeah, yours looks bad. But if you really look, even on your worst day, you probably have it better than 80% of the people on the planet. Yeah. So if you make sure you're comparing with people who have it worse, yeah, <laughs> right? Right. And get out of your own stuff and serve. Find a passion project that gets you excited about life. That'll turn things around. Well, and how many of us actually, I mean, we don't know what another family's even going through. So when you look at somebody like, oh, their life is perfect. Yeah, you have no you idea. You have no idea. They might just be more private. So they're not out there sharing all of their junk. But you don't know that they're all taking a ton of pills to – combat a family genetic issue. Yeah, what's that quote, Matt, that everybody you know is fighting a battle you have you know nothing, nothing about? It's about. so true. It's so true. And you and I get to f- hear yeah. that because we get to hear yeah. those stories of what's going on. But for everybody, we got to just be go easy on them. Yeah. Especially if they they treat you bad or offend you or are rude. Yeah. Understand it's not about you. It's hurt people, mm-hmm. hurting, hurting people, people that hurt people. That's one of the things like – and you've seen it too. Like some of the most beautiful, talented, uh, gifted, popular, wonderful people in the world, once you hear their story, it's not so pretty. It's not so – they're not so popular. <laughs> they're well known but it's they, – they've got issues. They've everybody's got, everybody's got, got issues. Everybody's got issues. It's so true. What would you say is if there's one thing that kind of – that and you maybe you've already mentioned it, um, but what's the one thing that all of us could do today to to you know lengthen our to lengthen the um, the lever a little bit more to lift the heavy stuff in our life? I think it's separate your value as a person from all of these experiences, from whatever your performance was or whatever situation. Understand that's not who you are and it doesn't determine your value as a human being. Yeah. It's just a class you're in. It's just a class. And and choose to believe that every human being has the exact same intrinsic worth no matter what they're going through. Right. And and give up the comparing. Just know you're in your class, they're in your their their own They're school. doing their thing, yeah. Yeah. But you've got the same value and so at the end of the day you're safe. Just just keep learning. Do it five minutes at a time, yeah. but know that your value is not on the line or attached to any of it. That's good. That's good. 
Man, Kim, you did it again. Kimberly Giles is her name. Uh, she's president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching. You can find more at claritypointcoaching.com. Also, 12shapes.com is another uh, place where you can get to her resources. Kim, thanks. Hey. Take Happy care. to be here. Take care of yourself. Be healthy, for heaven's sakes. Soon to be, um, she's always a doctor in my mind. I don't know why. I just think she's the queen. Uh, we will continue the journey more straight ahead. We'll do a little empty news. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the program. To uh, you know, we always like to cover the empty news. That's the news that you didn't know you needed to know. Right. It's sometimes it's the lighter side. Sometimes it's just sort of weird happenings. Yeah. Just dumb weird criminals. Stuff. Yeah. This is a dumb criminal. Authorities say a couple in Ohio was startled to find a stranger who had helped himself to leftover Easter candy and then fell asleep on the couch of their apartment. <laughs> Police say a 36-year-old man climbed through an unlocked window, got his sugar fix, and then fell asleep Friday in the couple's living room. Uh, a male resident of the home called 911 around 6 a.m. to report that, quote, some random guy wouldn't wake up. He had been heard yelling at the man to get out of here while he's on the phone with 911. Right, right. The man did leave and was arrested nearby. Police say that the man is being charged with burglary. But, you know, you wake up, some guy's eating your Easter candy and oh, sleep on your couch. See, but that makes you so sleepy. Should you still have Easter candy at this point? Sure. Ooh. I mean, maybe mm. you just bought in bulk. You know, maybe you bought too much. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't realize you didn't have kids. So you just realize, man, I have like 12 bags of candy just for me. Yeah. Not realizing that makes you a target for burglary. That's right. There you go. And then, but luckily, you it was a sedative. <laughs> Apparently. And, and the guy went to sleep on the couch, which made catching him a lot easier. He was just right there outside the building. I just, doesn't this kind of sound like what we were talking about earlier with overconfidence? Yes. When you fall asleep on the couch of the house, you're trying this. to burglarize. Like, I'll, I'll just take a quick little nap here. I mean, there is a moment where you're Getting like, too comfortable. I'm just going to take a quick nap during this robbery. <laughs> wow. This may be a case of overconfidence also. New York City police or New York police state are looking for an alleged identity thief who say used a stolen credit card, posed as a FedEx delivery worker, even used fake a fake name all to try to steal two smartphones in Staten Island. Oh, boy. But the suspect scheme failed, and even worse, detectives say he was caught on the house doorbell camera yeah. of the house that he stole the identity of. Busted. Right? So you steal the identity of the person, and then you show up to their house. Police say the thief used a stolen credit card to buy more than $2,000 worth of electronics, two Galaxy Plus phones. Plus phone cases, chargers, screen protectors. You know, he tricked out his phones. But he made one big mistake. He had the phone shipped to the victim's home in Staten Island instead of to, you know, maybe his house. <laughs> so when he realized his mistake, he went to the home of the victim, knocked on the door, rang the doorbell, the video doorbell, that now has a nice HD photograph yeah. of him, <laughs> and claimed that he was a FedEx delivery guy there to pick up the package that he was sent there by, and that was actually sent there by accident. The homeowner didn't believe him. Um, they're like, why would this be a misunderstanding? If I didn't order something, why would it come here? Who are you? You know, and why aren't you wearing the outfit? Yeah, it was just, it was really odd. So the homeowner didn't fall for it. The alleged ID thief ran off. They have his phone, his his photograph, and they know they from oh, the credit man. cards they can track the phones a little bit through purchasing. So yeah, when you buy something like that, don't show up to the victim's home. 
It's no, probably that's, a good step. It seems like that's one of the first rules you should yeah. You should have. Don't don't go to the scene of the crime. In other news, police say a three year old girl survived with just minor injuries after falling as far as five stories from a window and landing what? in a freshly a no fresh way. spread of mulch. Outside, wow. Right? So Stamford, Connecticut police say the girl fell from an apartment building when, or uh, this was last week, Tuesday afternoon. She was, she fell out of a window. She was moving and crying when they, when she was found, she was taken to the hospital with non-life threatening injuries. The police say the girl was being watched by her sight impaired grandmother and an aunt when she opened a window and fell next to the parking lot. Oh man. Just happened Ooh. to be Land right in the mulch. Oh, that could have been horrible. And people think there aren't miracles? Come on. And, My goodness. And some people knock mulch. Yeah. And some, mulch, mulch has a purpose. This is, yeah, this is why I tell my kids, bag it. You want to bag it so that we can put a big pile of bagged mulch there. Can't be too careful. They don't want to bag it, though. I'm like, it could save a life. And last week, around 30 people had been injured at a Jewish festival in London after a small explosion when a fire was lit. Some reports suggest that mobile phones had been thrown into the fire they had exploded because, you know, batteries and fire yeah. don't really work yeah, well. Yeah, those two don't go together. The devices were being put into the flames as a warning against the evil of smartphones. It, it proved a point. I mean, that, that did get so the point across. So people were mad, so they threw their phones in, and then yeah. they exploded. Yeah, and then they were injured. Yeah, that was the evil of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. There's probably maybe just give give away your phone if you don't want yeah, to have the phone. If you don't phone. want it, just yeah. give it away. Maybe take the battery out, then toss it in the fire. But sell I'm gonna, it. Yeah, just sell your phone. You could do that, but then maybe you'd be benefiting from evil. Yeah. Well, this way you just took one for the team. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's interesting. I never knew what would happen to your phone if you threw it in a fire, but now I know. Uh, the battery may explode. Yeah. So yeah, don't do that. It's always back to the batteries, isn't it? It's always back to the batteries. Got one more for us, Terry? I do. Uh, let's see. This one's interesting. A Massachusetts police department said a fingerprint left in a hunk of Play-Doh led them to a shoplifting suspect. <laughs> Was he playing with the Play-Doh, I guess? Police responded to a Walmart December 11th after an uh, employee found several electronic anti-theft devices had been covered in the clay-like toy in an apparent attempt to neutralize them. So if you go to electronic stores, they have this like spider web looking device. Yeah, yeah. It has like a component in the middle and then there's uh, like nylon arms that reach out across the device to keep it from being taken. He was trying to use Play-Doh somehow to deactivate it. Oh, interesting. And then he uh, he did, however, leave uh, – it didn't work, and he ran away, but he left his fingerprint right in the Play-Doh. <laughs> and the police charged 55-year-old Dennis Jackson with unlawful removal of an anti-theft device. Police say he has a long criminal record, faces two arrest warrants, on and on and on. Busted. But not very smart, left his fingerprint in the Play-Doh. Don't do that. <sighs> Overconfident. Overconfident, again. But it's because they have enough knowledge from the Internet to believe they could get away with it. Makes him confident. Boom. Busted. Right. Well, yeah, and it said he had a record, so, you know, he knew a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. Can't trust it, folks. If you, if you don't believe us, just listen to our other earlier hours of our show where we talked about overconfidence. A little learning may not be so good for you. Awesome stuff. Let's get uh, let's get to it. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. We also will be playing for them um, Gator Ball. The great uh, invention of a game. I in, I took baseball and put a little slant on it, and some chummed baselines, and life was good. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 
next spring on BYU Radio. What do you get when you take America's greatest pastime and add one of the most feared creatures on the planet? You get Gator Ball. Gator Ball is the same as baseball with just a few minor adjustments. Two teams of nine players come onto the field wearing uniforms that have been dipped overnight in chicken and fish chum. As the game commences, players need to make sure they're at the top of their game or else... If you hate long, drawn-out games, you'll love Gator Ball. Anytime a pitcher takes too long to throw the ball, or a coach calls for a review, and anytime there's a pickoff attempt, watch out for them Gators. Oh, man, these kids are taking way too long, man. Oh, look at that. They're going to send out the Gators. You better watch out for that. You may try to steal third, but if you don't make it, a Gator's going to steal your foot. Somebody shoot him! Man, that gator, he locked his foot. He got him out of here, man. And if the gator gets you, the inning's over. Other exciting plays include the sacrifice fly, where the team offers up their injured or low-performing players. The double play, where the gators are given a chance to bite two players in one play. Or the walk-off home run where any player who hits a home run is allowed to walk off the field and watch the remainder of the game from the safety of the dugout. Oh, man, that ball is gone. Oh, he's gone. Oh, man, he ain't going to be no Gator Fool tonight, man. Yeah. Gator ball. A game you can really sink your teeth into. (laughs) It's time, folks. We got to go down to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation, Jerem and Jason, today. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Good morning. Did you hear our Gator Ball tribute to you that's, both? That's, I did. That's that was nice. And I was like, you better listen. That's why we did it. That's why we did it because we care. How are I appreciate you? Appreciate it. What do you What do you think, Jace? Uh, I think it would be awesome to watch. Uh, horrible to play. <laughs> Unless you're a man. It'd be awesome Good point. to watch. Huh? <laughs> Unless you're the the crocodile hunter. Unless, unless you don't mind little gator bite. <laughs> Hey, um, what's going to be on your show, and can you can you somehow beat Gator Ball? We were in Mesa over the weekend. Yes. It was 100 degrees. It was hot. It was fun. It was great to be at the BYU Fan Fest uh, in Arizona. It's fun. Did our generator uh, you know, stop working twice during the show and before? Maybe, but Maybe. whatever. <laughs> we, we had a great time down there. Really fun. There were some nuggets that came out of the interviews that we did there, including offensive coordinator Jeff Grimes on the quarterback position, the running backs. Lee Kamard on uh, the offense for BYU Hoops this season, and much, much more. Yeah, we, What a uh, party. You may have heard of uh, Kalen Hall, a former BYU player. Uh, he has two sons. He had one. K.J. Hall, the running back, has been here for, for a little bit. But uh, his son, uh, Jaron Hall, is now back from his mission, a quarterback. He back. So he- now uh, Kalen has two sons on the BYU football team. We will talk with Kalen wow. about his sons. And what the future may look like for Jaron. <gasps> Interesting. It's a it's a it's it's all about the halls today, at least in the B block. Well, Max is not one of them. It is not about Max Hall. Another it's hall. A different family. Yeah, another Hall family. Yes. Yeah, speaking of Mesa, Arizona, mm-hmm. Max Hall. Yeah. That's big. Big. Cool story. Anything else on the show? Anything that involves blood and gators. Uh, blood, maybe no gators. Okay. And what public publication uh, named a certain BYU defensive lineman one of the most underrated 
players in the country. Oh. We will tell you. The Christian Monitor? Uh, okay, fine. Two publications. Okay, sorry. Because I knew I saw it there. <laughs> okay. By the mouth of two or three. That's great. Witnesses. That's so great. That's really great. Okay, anything else on the show? Literally nothing else. Okay. But by the way, the Rockets, Red Glare. The Rockets. What is the deal with... They're really good. I know, That's they're the really deal. good. They're That's... really good. Chris Paul is a punk. He's and, a punk. Uh, That's well, all... honestly, I have no idea... I, I have no idea how the refs don't constantly tee him up. Yeah. He is constantly, literally running... Yapping, yapping. ...at referee, like running at them and complaining. How he doesn't get... He should get teed every time. I agree. He should fall out of every game because of two techs. He has good insurance. That's mm, good that, point. It's a great Oscar point. Oscar from The Office is his agent. It's a great... <laughs> It's a great point. All right, boys, have a great show. Jerem and Jason, they'll be up on BYU Sports Nation in just a few minutes, only four minutes away, folks, before you get to just soak all that in. Hey, uh, we always like to end the show with our hero of the day, and our hero today is an Ohio grandfather has been dubbed a hero after he tripped up a young armed, sir, armed suspect who was attempting to run away from police. Uh, video footage shows the brave man named only as Bill quickly step backwards and stick his leg out behind him as the suspect, identified as Deshaun Briggs, sprints past him, uh, causing him to fall to the ground. A police van then descends on the scene and an officer jumps out of the moving vehicle moments later. Columbus police posted the footage on the Facebook page on Thursday and hailed book, uh, Bill for his fancy footwork. They were chasing the guy. They had video from the cop cars chasing the guy. He just happens to run right behind Bill, and Bill, anticipating him coming, takes a step forward and then pushes his leg out behind him and trips the guy. Awesome video. We'll be putting it up on our um, on our Twitter page as well. But uh, police confirmed a nine Glock, a nine millimeter pistol with twenty nine rounds was recovered from the scene. He had just, uh, I guess, had an armed robbery at a store nearby as well. So. Anyway, Bill's the hero of the day, and he doesn't even want to be known as the hero, right? Just standing there. He had his cane, by the way. Still had the smarts to kick his leg back and trip the dude. Community involvement, be it by courage, bravery, and or fancy footwork, helped take a criminal off the streets of Columbus. Thank you, Bill, for sticking your leg out for us. That was what uh, the police department wrote. That's the show, my friends. We can't do it without you. We'll be back tomorrow with more ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. BYU Sports Nation is up next.